So everyone, thank you very much for joining us for today's Avoid Los Angeles Legal Section uh, section meeting or e-town hall meeting. Uh, first, apolog we apologize that, that there is some uh, slight background um, from my end and the music, uh, space music. Uh, so you, uh, I will mute myself so you won't hear that during the presentation, so don't worry about it. Um, just bear with me uh, for one second. So today we have a very interesting talk, very exciting. And I have a, a great speaker, it's a very uh, uh, fascinating uh, scientist, engineer, and he's uh, going to tell, tell us the, the very interesting thoughts uh, he had in analysis. And uh, so uh, just uh, enjoy the event. So the, first of all, today is September 11. Uh, so this uh, 20 years ago, uh, there's a, a tragedy. Uh, so we'd like to take this opportunity to uh, meet ourselves for 30 seconds in memory of the victims. So uh, now we are uh, in the 30 second uh, silence. Just, just uh, grateful then, thank you. All right, thank you so much. So we all uh, remember, we'll never forget. Uh, so, uh, uh, so that in a sense, what we are doing here is to help people move forward. Uh, the SpaceX, you know, and uh, Starship, everything. So let's keep going. So uh, just some logistics. Uh, we thank you so much for uh, the speaker. So now we all have the recording uh, made and the post after the event. And also thanks to AIW headquarters providing this wonderful Zoom uh, platform. So if you have any issue of the uh, bandwidth, you can try to use the dial-in. Uh, if somehow you got disconnected, please keep trying to reconnect. It should be fine shortly. So during the event, if you have any questions, please type in Q&A box uh, for the speaker. And the chat room, please use just for uh, communication with fellow attendee. For the speaker, and uh, in the, after the presentation during the Q and A, please uh, click raise hand. You will be uh, muted and uh, welcome to have a very interactive uh, session with the speaker. So, just a few words about AWA. AWA is uh, um, you know American-based but international uh, organization. And our president is uh, Mr. Basil Hassan, uh, executive director, is former NASA executive. Uh, is Daniel uh, Dendang Doctor. Our current section chair is Dr. Jeff Michelle. He's a Adaboy Fellow, Raytheon Fellow. He's a PI with Raytheon. Uh, so uh, our goal is to encourage, inspire, engage people. And so, uh, you know, uh, to help everybody connect each other, networking and move forward for uh, aerospace. So uh, it's a huge organization headquartered in Western Virginia. Uh, 90 years of aerospace leadership uh, from Wright Brother and uh, Robert Gata from the two organizations that established in the 1920s. So uh, we're going to join professional society. We got uh, um, to meet the experts and you stay current in the field, networking and uh, you publish 
and uh, it looks great for your resume. So uh, we have different level of membership, uh, young professionals who have been called early career. They are also professionals. We are running the discount fifty percent off, and we have student educator, which is free, and high school students free. Uh, so uh, you can contact us or call the customer service and uh, enjoy more. And look at the website. And, uh, that's uh, just the website you have. Then once you join, you can immediately enjoy the uh, engage. You can it's a platform. It was like a social media, but not exactly like that, but you can chat with uh, fellow members, post your resume, post your activities, you know, everybody can share, that would be wonderful. And uh, daily lunch, uh, launch, you can uh, receive a lot of insider stories, sometimes you get great opportunities. Some of our members get business opportunities out of that. And uh, also the, the very famous aerospace magazine is, is very well edited, uh, very popular and reputation. And you enjoy great discount for attending national conferences and forums. It's a lot of saving. And uh, we also have ARC for publication, AIA Foundation, Brogen uh, just donated one million uh, to uh, the other way at the club of the future is to support education uh, for, for the, uh, the effort. And engage, I just mentioned, and industry company. Career center, if you're looking for opportunity, change career, those things, it's a great uh, uh, center resource for everyone. And uh, we also promote, you know, after years, it becomes senior member. <clears throat> Or you have some uh, great contribution to, um, you know, leadership, technology, or different area or education. You can nominate. You know, um, you, uh, we can get the reference, nominate, and advance in the level of membership. For example, uh, Mr. Elon Musk is our associate fellow, and uh, Ms. Queen Shotwell of SpaceX is honorary fellow. And of course, by our beloved Buzz Aldrin, New Armstrong, they are also on the fellow. Dr. Jeff Fushel, our section chair, and Mr. Steve Isakowicz, uh, also Dr. James Wurz of Michael Carson, uh, they are all you know, our great network uh, fellow. So we also have awards, you know, like uh, um, Dr. Paul Bellalapa, he was the inventor of certified uh, retail engine. Uh, so it's uh, got a Guggenheim Award and Fujino. Uh, Dr. Pugino from Honda, uh, he got the read awards. So this is a very important part of the AI degree. And, uh, student membership is a great important part. You have published student conference, de design view and fry contest, rocket contest, and you can apply for a student scholarship. That's only for student uh, students. So we have uh, events such like the Ascent in November uh, to continue the previous practice. to network and uh, learn more. We have also online courses. That's with many, many uh, aerospace activity. Southern California is really brand center of aerospace. And we have new activity like a launcher space in Hudson, relativity space, Long Beach, more 3D, 3D printing, and many, many uh, aerospace companies, just amazing. Uh, so we have, event like today and uh August 31st we have struggle launch and uh, keep going uh, September 25th with uh, Titan uh the uh, dragonfly and so the 18 you know uh system engineering and the radar application is very just uh, uh, fascinating so we also have newsletter uh you can welcome to engage and post your articles and uh, it's a great opportunity to 
to uh, communicate. This is the article I was talking to Dr. Hammer. It's uh, adaptive optics, <clears throat> laser gauss star adaptive uh, uh, system. It's, uh, it's, uh, we have a woman event, etc. Uh, we also have podcasts. So, you know, this is really um, important. We have so, you know, space thing is just so uh, amazing. But, you know, sometimes people really um, just look at multiple news. They, they lost actually the most important part or got to have misled by certain media. So today, Dr. Casey Hammer is going to tell us, you know, his analysis and the thoughts about those. He's a physicist uh, from uh, uh, PhD Caltech. He's also a software engineer and, uh, he did a lot of, he took this lot of copious free time uh, by writing about the industrialization of Mars, which is a very exciting topic. He's a writer of the Brock series, uh, Misconceptions in Space Journalism. And you can see his uh, tweets and the website, and we post it on our website as well. So please, please enjoy this great uh, event. So we'll have a lot of fun. So uh, that's uh, all for introduction. So uh, it's all yours, Dr. Kenneman. Thank you very much. All right, uh, can someone confirm that they can see my screen? Anyone? All right, there's the chat. All right, yes, can see. Okay, thanks. I'm gonna have the chat window open here as well. So if you have, uh, any burning questions, just drop them straight there and I'll, I'll address them as I go along. Um, and, you know, if you suddenly can't hear me or whatever, do let me know. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Ken. It's a real honor to be here and to uh, be able to share my, my interest and passion in this subject with all of you. Um, and uh, I selected this fabulous picture of the, the first test integration of Starship and, and the booster uh, here down at Boca Chica. Um, it's kind of got, it hits all the right notes. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm here to talk about essentially is a, an elaboration of a blog post that I published about two years ago on Starship and why it's kind of a, a step change, um, uh, increase in, hello. Lower right corner of the slide seems to have some window blocking it. Aha. That's the chat window. That's annoying. Hmm. I don't have, okay. I, I'll leave that off and I'll just check it from time to time. Um, the, what was I going to say? Um, uh, Starship and stuff. It's a step change uh, increase in, in human kind of launch capability. All right. So um, as you can see, I'm actually by coincidence wearing exactly the same shirt today that I was in that photo. Um, I own more than one nice t-shirt, but not a whole lot more than one. Um, so first of all, I have to be really clear and upfront. This, this talk represents my own opinions only. Um, I work for JPL, which is a NASA center here in Southern California, and it, they have uh, highly skilled media professionals that uh, do the official representation of the agency's point of view and of the lab's point of view. And these are the people who you see talking on TV when the rover or the Mars helicopter does something really cool. Um, and I'm not one of those people. I'm not officially allowed, I'm not officially authorized to represent the point of view of NASA. Uh, what I am encouraged to do is to share my passion and my uh, joy for this subject with anyone in any way. Uh, I just have to be really clear that I'm not speaking for NASA. Uh, I'm only here to, to uh, embarrass myself. Um, and I'm also don't speak for SpaceX, obviously. Um, and I'm, I don't want to share, uh, sorry, I won't be sharing any inside information. So, and so here's a slide for some shameless self-promotion. Um, uh, as you can tell from my accent, I was born and raised in Australia. 
where I did a uh, undergraduate degree with some research in theoretical optics. Uh, I immigrated to the United States in 2010, did a PhD there um, focusing on gravitational waves. Uh, after that finished in about 2015, I moved over to Hyperloop One, uh, which is pictured here on the right, and, um, and just, uh, kind of did the design and analysis work on the levitation system for this test pod, uh, which you can see here with these yellow, yellow pieces. Um, and I also did a bunch of design work on the next generation system, which is kind of this patent illustration here you can see on the top right, um, which is super cool and super esoteric and also hasn't really been built, but maybe someday. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, currently, my, my job at JPL is, is doing science uh, instrument development, uh, so software development for science mission instruments that use GPS uh, signals. Um, and I've also been doing a lot of planetary mapping. Um, again, it's super esoteric and focused. So I don't, I don't write very often about that sort of thing, but every now and then it will come up. Um, and then just to be clear, this is not a grift. I'm not here to kind of promote, uh, you know, you know, a webinar or something like that. It's, it's free. Almost all of the stuff that I, that I do online is free. I have a blog. It's free. I don't even put ads on it. I don't put ads on my YouTube. I don't put ads on Twitter. I don't do anything like that. This is just me uh, sharing my joy, sharing my passion for this subject. Um, and, and I'm smart enough to realize that, that this is not my main gig. So um, some of you will probably be aware of my work through um, my blog, uh, aptly named blog.caseyhammer.com. If you have a good idea for a better name that's kind of mysterious and, and cool, let me know because I feel like it's probably time that I had one. Um, I've been writing blogs going back probably 15 years now. Um, you can go digging in the archives if you want to see. Um, and they focus mostly on things like travel or politics um, and, uh, and then a lot of space stuff over the last five years or so. And then more recently, quite a lot of energy stuff, which I think is a, a harbinger of things to come. Uh, I've got a, a few, more, few more planned in that space. Um, but the, uh, the blog that I'm kind of here to talk about right now is this, this series, Countering Misconceptions in Space Journalism, um, that I kind of started you know, a while ago, and then it kind of got way out of hand. And so these are, these are all the articles that are currently grouped under that, that area there. And then this one up here is the Starship article. So I'm going to be kind of pulling pieces from some of these other blogs as I go along, um, just to kind of make sure I'm telling an integrated story here. But it turns out that, um, you know, space stuff is incredibly diverse. And there's a lot of really interesting ideas out there. And my particular background, which happens to be physics, uh, informs a lot of these different areas. Um, and so I've found that I had quite a lot of stuff to write about. I also have a, a website, which I've just, just got around to upgrading to like only five years out of date HTML. So it's, it's really kind of old school. Um, but if you're interested in, in you know, downloading um, your own copy of this, this poster here uh, or, or any of the other kind of projects that I put up online, you can find that on this website. Um, and then I actually, every now and then, like take a bunch of blog posts and like smash them together into a, a, a Google Doc and then put it online for free and then also make an Amazon version of it, um, like a, a Kindle version of it and put it on Amazon. So as of now, there are four, uh, four books on Amazon that I've published. This one is very recent, just a couple of months ago. Um, the first one was How to Get to Earth from Mars, which was kind of, you know, basically a very long essay talking about um, all the different concerns that I'll be talking about later in this talk, which inform the design of Starship. Um, although I have to say, like, if you read the book, it's very clear that, that the way that I integrated those uh, requirements was close to, but not really exactly quite like Starship. There are some key details that I that I missed, uh, and then there was a chapter on this that talked about like well, what do you do once you're there, and that that turned out to be quite interesting. So I wrote a book about industrializing Mars, which um, itself also kind of got out of control. It says uh, how to settle a lethal vacuum in 400 easy steps, um, 
but that was that was a fun one and then um and then i thought oh i'm done i'm done now i'm done now and then and then the um the misconceptions kind of blog went way out of control and so i, I smashed a bunch of those together and made this this most recent book uh, which i call reading in the space space because i'm allergic to good titles for things um and uh, and then i also have a book here on on grad school and, and my experiences at caltech um which kind of grew out of the fact that that more often than not, like I would say quite often people would contact me and be like, Hey, my niece or nephew is about to go to Caltech. Can you meet with them and talk to them about like, you know, how not to be, how not to repeat your mistakes, uh, to put it bluntly. And, um, and I said, yeah, sure. No worries. And then I realized that, that I actually had quite a lot to say about this. And so I, I ended up putting this book together. Um, and again, all these books are available for free. Uh, if you, if you, you know, look at the, the, the preview and you look at the first page, there's a link right there to the free version of it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to make money here, but the, um, but if you've got a relative or a friend who's, who's thinking about going to grad school or who's in grad school and is like, ah, oh, this is hard, you know, this is one of many resources that I would recommend. Um, I'm, I'm quite proud of that. Incidentally, I wrote that book um, in about a week um, because my wife was pregnant with our first child and unconscious most of the time. So um, <laughs> sat down and smashed it out. Um, and then every now and then someone will be like, oh, you should write about this. And I'll like add another half chapter or something. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter. So if you want to see me shit posting at various people or whatever, then that's where you find me. Um, and then I've got, you know, that, that same picture. I, I just only have a couple of pictures about space stuff. Okay. Um, so let's talk about this countering misconceptions in space journalism thing. So um, throughout my kind of adult life, I've encountered public writing about space of varying qualities. And I have to say on the outset, most of it is very good. Um, most of, um, most of, uh, space journalism by people like uh, Jeff Faust and Eric Berger and so on. Um, it's actually really, really good. But every now and then you'd, you'd find something in the more popular print media or something and just like, like, like your brain would do something like the ill-fated Antares launch here because it was stuff that seemed so obvious that it was wrong to me. Um, but, you know, these things came up again and again. And, you know, the, the kind of examples you can point to is like, oh, we can't go to space, we'll die of radiation or like zero gravity will kill us all or the aliens are going to eat us or something like that. And so I, I kind of was just getting spooled up to write a series of incredibly snarky negative blogs about this being like, these people are terrible. What are they doing wrong? And then uh, fortunately, like um, kind of realized that there was a much better way of approaching this problem, which was to start by uh, explaining what I don't understand about the problem and then um, explaining why it's hard to understand this problem and, and what the problem is about and what are the different contributing factors to this problem. And, and then, you know, how we might go about understanding this problem and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a much more productive way to think about uh, and a much more positive and constructive way to think about these particular misconceptions. Uh, and then as time went on, you know, this, this blog got wildly out of hand um, and, and then turned into a you know, 150,000 word book. So, um, so it's just a kind of, it's a nice way to kind of put down all my thoughts on a particular topic. And then if I get into an argument on Twitter with someone about it, I can be like, oh, I write a blog about it, check this out. And, and then they can read it. They can be like, that blog's terrible, but then at least we can talk about it, right? Um, and you know, people can write back to me and say, well, you missed this, or you, know, you, you missed this calculation up or something like that. And I can go, go back there and fix it. And, and then it kind of, it forms this, this static resource of information and links and concepts about particular topics that's very accessible and readable. And, um, and the overall objective was to kind of shape the discourse and to shift the Overton window away from these kind of religious disputes about whether or not Mars is better or the moon is better and, and really help people think about these problems in a quantitative and rigorous way so that they could you know, approach these problems uh, on a footing of, of um, kind of skepticism and rationalism and, and, and mathematical analysis that meant that 
you know, it wasn't really a, so much a, a battle of personalities. It was more of a, a contest of ideas. Anyway, and, and I will here claim like a small level of success in that regard. Um, I, I, I feel like um, I've, I've received almost universally positive feedback uh, for this project and, um, and, and some of the blogs in particular, I think have really kind of nailed something, including the ones I'm talking about today. All right, I'm just gonna quickly check the, the chat window and see if people are screaming at me about something. All right, no one's screaming yet, good. Um, so let's talk about launch vehicles. Um, of course, yeah, everyone's familiar with the big ones, the more common ones, you've got Soyuz, we've got the Long March family of launches, we've got Falcon, um, we have Atlas and Delta and the Space Shuttle and Saturn V and so on. Um, and it's important to realize that, that all of these launches are incredibly difficult to build. Um, if you think about uh, that book that recently came out by Eric Berger about the early days of SpaceX, you know that is basically the story behind every single large engineering project. It's just um, dozens and dozens of, at least dozens and dozens, if not thousands of people really smashing up against the edge of, of human capability and human knowledge and struggling to make something work. Um, and, and so you think about that effort, which is you know, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of person years of effort per launcher, right? And then you multiply it by the total number of missiles, which are basically primitive rockets ever built which is like 600, 650 different kinds of, of missiles that have been deployed. Um, and then their descendant launch, launch systems, almost all launch systems are derived from, from missiles, uh, which of which there are about 350. Uh, and you get some idea of just the unimaginable amount of time and money that has been invested in developing rocket technology since the Second World War, when, uh, when the Nazis started building the V2. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, people have tried to estimate how much money this is, but it's it's like it's definitely in the like large single digit trillions of dollars uh, that has been invested over the last you know almost 100 years into developing rocket technology, and yet of these 350 launch systems, most of them are not even on this poster. Most of them you've never heard of and would never hear of unless you clicked on this link and had a look at their website and were like, oh, that's interesting. The Scout. Um, most of them are defunct. Most of them are not being built anymore, despite all the effort that went into making them. Uh, and all of them are extremely expensive, and most of them are not very effective. You know, there's, there's, among that list, there's only really a handful of launches that you you could call successful, which is to say they they achieved every objective that their designers set out to do. And the space shuttle is not in that list. The space shuttle had you know 130 something launches and 14 fatalities, which is more than like. One, about one fatality per nine launches or something. Um, it did not achieve those, those goals. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of worth considering that like uh, launches, you know, this is kind of so obvious, it, it's, you wouldn't even think to say it, but it still bears stating that, that launches are so hard to make that with trillions of dollars and tens of thousands of engineers working for a century, no one has cracked the problem yet. No one has really found a solution that, that you can point to and say, that's authoritative. If you just copy that, you'll be fine. No one has yet made the Toyota Camry or the Honda Civic of launches where everything that comes after is basically, you know, can be compared to on a sliding scale with the standard appropriate and, and uh, effective engineering solution. So I think that's just worth pointing out. Um, and and people who, who, who kind of insist otherwise usually are trying to sell you something. Uh, and then here's this poster that I just referred to earlier, which is behind me. And this is uh, crude launches from US soil. 
um, going back to to uh, the, the very earliest days and then up to the last space shuttle. And when we have enough uh, Falcon and maybe Starliner launches, I'll add another row. Um, and I actually have a version of this for the Russian space program as well, uh, but it's missing a handful of the early launches. So if you happen, happen to know where I can get launch photos from the very early Soyuz and uh, Voskhod launches, please let me know. Um, that would be helpful. I ask around and thus far I've had no luck. Um, so first of all, we're going to talk about launch costs here um, because ultimately the subtext for this talk is we want to build cities on Mars, right? Um, but we're pretty sure we can't build a city on Mars with like, you know, a trunk full of stuff. Um, it's going to have to be like, you know, tons, many tons of things. So the amount of cost to launch that stuff into space and then send it to Mars is important. Um, and so here on the horizontal axis, we have time, you know, uh, 1960 through 2030. And on the vertical axis, we have cost. Um, in dollars per kilogram, and it's a logarithmic scale. Uh, so we have 100, 200, 400, 800, 1600. Each, each, each division here doubles. And, um, and so we kind of see a scattering of, of launches here prior to 2010, which are between you know, $3,000 and $50,000 uh, per kilogram, with the Saturn V fairly far down. Um, partly because it had a good mass fraction because it's a very large rocket and partly because it launched a lot of stuff because it's a very large rocket and the shuttle all the way up here, uh, mostly because it was incredibly complicated. Um, and the Delta IV Heavy, which is kind of in the middle of the pack here, despite the fact that the Delta IV Heavy is by modern standards, unbelievably expensive. And then the Falcon 9 came along here at about uh, $3,000 per kilogram and the Falcon Heavy about half that. Um, and then this blue line doesn't mean anything. That's not how you do fits, but but it is kind of telling that on this scale, the goal for Starship is somewhere around 200 bucks per kilogram um, and possibly even less. And that is, you know, obviously like this is not like this. This is, this is quite different. And, and in order to achieve that, um, there's only so much you can, you can do by extrapolating from this data set. Um, but obviously something like 200 bucks a kilogram is necessary if we want to be able to build moon bases without, you know, bankrupting the world economy. Uh, and then the second, the second half of this question is, is launch volume. So this is the total number of launches per year since the very beginning, um, peaking at about 140 through most of my childhood in the nineties and early two thousands, it was about half that. And then more recently it's kind of recovered somewhat. Um, and the earlier launches were somewhat smaller usually, but yeah, on average, each launch is about five tons of cargo. And so as a species, all 7 billion of us, are uh, putting about 500 tons of stuff into orbit every year. Um, and just to put that in perspective, 500 tons is, is roughly equivalent to the cargo of an ancient Roman or ancient Greek cargo ship that would be like built without nails or compasses and sailing around the Mediterranean Sea 2000 years ago. So as a species, we're really, we're really still at the beginning here. You know, like this is still ex extremely primitive um, in terms of our un underlying capabilities. Um, and in order to do cities on the moon and cities on Mars, this number doesn't need to just kind of go to like, you know, 200 launches a year or a thousand tons a year. It needs to go to like a hundred thousand or a million tons a year. We're, we're talking like many orders of magnitude improvement. And that is um, quite ambitious. I'll put it that way um, to, to achieve that. So let's talk about logistics. Um, to, to put it in, in comparison, uh, compared to an ancient Greek um, cargo ship, which would be about the size of, of this name tag up the front here. This is one of the largest uh, container ships ever built. Uh, it was launched earlier this year. 
um, and it has the capacity of about 400,000 tons of cargo. Um, and so if we think that building a city on Mars will need a million tons of cargo to completely replicate the entire industrial stack from scratch in a hostile frigid vacuum that's 100 million miles away from Earth, then that is two and a half or three of these container ships loaded to the gills with machinery and solar panels and self-replicating machines and whatever else you can think of. And that seems like that's actually really difficult on two fronts, right? The first is like obviously getting all that stuff to Mars is a pain, and I'll talk about that a bit more. But the second is if we compare the city on Mars, which would have you know a few hundred thousand people, to say Iceland, which has a few hundred thousand people, but Iceland also has copious geothermal power and breathable air and fresh water and uh, you know, other stuff, uh, polar bears. Um, it's very difficult to imagine that, say, the government of Iceland could say, oh, well, we're, we're going to stop. We're going to cut ourselves off from the world like North Korea. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to take you know, two or three of these ships and, and beach them on the, in the dock in Reykjavik. And, uh, and we're just going to load up the containers with whatever we can think of to try and make Iceland a self-sufficient industrial economy, like say Germany or South Korea or something, um, or the United States. Uh, and, you, and you have to do it with only three ships worth of stuff. It seems like that's 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 pretty tough call, right? Compared, like, there's obviously a lot more stuff in all the factories in South Korea than you can fit in just three of these ships. I mean, these ships are made in factories in South Korea. So just to put that in perspective, um, so that, that's a tough problem. And then obviously, um, you know, 500 tons, which is our current annual launch uh you know, capacity is equivalent to about one one of these stacks of containers, right? So from like this this orange one here all the way down to the bottom of the hull, it's like 10 or 15 containers, and that's about 500 tons. So in order to go from 500 tons to a million tons to orbit per year, uh, you know, we need to uh, not just launch one pile of containers, but actually one multiplied by the entire length of the ship and the entire width of the ship, um, and then do that, you know, before June, um, and then do it again. So it's, I, I, I like looking at this ship because it really kind of puts in perspective what the, the magnitude of the challenge is. And the thing is like, this is an enormous ship. We can't build rockets this big with technology that we currently understand could even exist. This is not a matter of like, oh, well, you know, if we built a better Raptor, we'd be okay. This is a matter of mm, under, under, under known physics, launching something this size into space would not be possible. So um, the Starship is, is an absolute monster of a rocket and it would be able to launch about four containers worth of stuff into space, uh, maybe five. Um, and so, you know, really we need to have thousands and thousands of launches every, every year. So I hope that, uh, that helps illustrate the magnitude of the problem. So I think at this point, I will just, um, I'll just check chat window in case anything has come up. It'd be nice if it scrolled all the way down. Yes, I think Dave and Dave Dennis post two comments or questions. Is it only log scale because of the Starship rockets? Uh, no, I just took the graph from somewhere. Um, but yeah, that, that helps put it on the same graph. Yeah, Dave, you're, you're absolutely right about um, desired versus actual cost. Um, okay. And then uh, thanks, Ken, for being my heat shield there. Um, I, I don't mind, uh, you know, I don't want to get massively sidetracked by earlier questions, but if I've missed something obvious, it's, it's, it's a good idea to check it. Um, so... If we kind of um, collate all these different ideas and requirements, we kind of start to build up a picture of what the capacity of a launch system that's capable of building cities in space would look and feel like, right? It's not like you know a slightly beefed up Atlas V. It's not a space shuttle that actually works. It has to be something that's that's quite a bit different. Um, and and so kind of collate these ideas. Um, we need something like a 10, 10x a decrease in dollars per ton to orbit uh, over 
over Falcon Heavy and like 100x compared to everything else, uh, we need a thousand x increase in tons per year, right? So we need we need both a, a decrease in the cost and an increase in the capacity. And overall, we'll still have an increase in cost because we'll be sending more stuff. Um, but the amount of stuff we'll be sending is a lot more. It needs to be capable of entry, descent, and landing on Mars. Uh, it needs to be capable of in-situ resource utilization and a single stage return from Mars, which means it has to have quite a high delta V uh, capacity in a single stage. Uh, and that also enables it to do a single stage lunar landing and return to LEO, to low Earth orbit. It needs to be uh, fully and rapidly reusable in order to achieve these, these cost targets and, and um, cadence launch cadence targets. I mean, I guess it's possible you could say that um, you could say, oh, we'll just figure out some way of making them really cheaply and really uh, quickly. Um, and instead of um, instead of reusing them, we'll just make 10 times as many. That is a possibility, I, I suppose, but um, it, it is it becomes a little dubious, I think. Uh, and then obviously uh, we need a very high efficiency engine, uh, which in SpaceX's case is the Raptor. Um, and there's this amazing picture of it here uh, by Eisen Ramos. Um, who I think taught himself how to do CAD by making this model. This is actually a model of Raptor. It's not a photograph. It's a, it's a CAD model. It kind of blows my mind. I have a 3D printer and I was thinking of printing this. And then I decided that, you know, one shouldn't beg for miracles. Um, and it's important to note that while most of Starship is kind of building itself around very generic technology stacks, you know, we're going to take sheets of stainless steel and weld them together, you know, instead of doing, um, uh, friction steel welding of, of CNC pocketed out, um, you know, uh, 7,000 7, series aluminum. The engine is irreducibly complex. It's irreducibly hard. There's no way of doing something like the Raptor engine without, you know, really smashing up against the boundaries of human knowledge and capability. And, uh, and it really represents something that's, that's right at the frontier of what's physically possible. Um, and necessarily, you know, a lot of pain and effort has gone into, into designing and building uh, and iterating the design for Raptor. Uh, and I think the, the results, uh, the demonstrated performance speaks for itself. Um, it's, the, it's the only uh, full flow stage combustion cycle engine to have ever, ever flown. Um, and there's a lot of very esoteric technical detail uh, about Raptor that I'm not planning to go into today. Um, but again, this is 2021 now, there's many people online who have done amazing breakdowns of the technology that underlies this rocket. Um, and so you can you know, read about it there, I guess. Um, and then obviously, um, even if it's capable of doing a single stage return from Mars, it still needs um, more Delta V to launch from Earth. So it needs a booster. Um, this is not a single stage to orbit capable rocket. I mean, actually, technically it is. It could, the, the Starship could launch single stage to orbit, but not with any cargo, which is useless. So it needs two stages to bring cargo to, to orbit. Um, and so if you put all these different requirements together and you know shake the box for a while, then this is something like what comes out. And this is the, um, the model of the, of the Starship slash BFR slash MCT slash ITS, whatever they called it at the time, um, circa 2016, which is five years ago. Um, and it has a, a large booster and then a large spaceship. It's got tanks, it's got header tanks, it's got um, Merlin, steerable Merlin engines, sorry, steerable Raptor engines and vacuum, fixed uh, vacuum engines. It's got a large internal car cargo and crew space. Um, and then it's got this, this kind of uh, fairly insane thrust structure at the bottom. And so this looks and feels a lot, a lot like the Starship today uh, with a couple of key differences. Uh, mainly the carbon fiber primary structure has changed. Um, but this is kind of, kind of what, they, what they drew out. Um, and the important thing to note 
about this particular design for doing human stuff on Mars is that of the dozens and dozens of different architectures for sending humans to Mars, beginning with um, von Braun's Mars project, uh, you know, going all the way through um, Mars Direct, the 90 day report, all these other ones, um, you know, including ones depicted in science fiction, such as the Martian or the Mars trilogy or whatever. This is the first one that, um, that kind of correctly recognizes that the hard part of this project is getting a, uh, a rocket that's capable of getting from Mars back to Earth onto the surface of Mars. Um, the hard part about sending humans to Mars is actually sending them back to Earth when you're done. Um, like, well, that's, that is the hardest of the parts. Um, getting them to Mars is also hard and keeping them alive on Mars is also hard. But, but I think getting it back from Mars is the hard part. And this was the first rocket that kind of um, its design reflected that reality. And then there were, you know, a couple of, of key technology developments that were necessary to make something like this possible. And uh, one of them was the Raptor engine, which didn't exist at the time. Um, and one of them were these very large scale carbon fiber structures. And so SpaceX set about, um, you know, retiring development risks on these particular projects by building the pre-burners for the, 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 the Raptor engine and testing them and building large uh, carbon fiber pilot tanks and testing them. And what they found was that the engine was a solvable problem, uh, you know, a lot of headaches and the carbon fiber was really a pain in the butt. And so they realized that it was time to change tack there and they, they switched away from carbon fiber. Um, and so, you know, let's say, let's wave a magic wand and say that Starship exists and, uh, and it works. Um, and this, this reality I think is coming a lot closer every day, but, but when I wrote this blog two years ago and when they first announced this five years ago, it was still pretty pie in the sky. Um, but let's kind of talk about what its capabilities enable. It's a highway to the solar system um, because it's designed to refill its fuel and oxidize it in low earth orbit. That very uh, high capacity, high capability second stage, um, which gets it to orbit is then, you know, a third stage, uh, a completely refilled third stage. It's, it can go again and it has enough payload capacity, enough uh, fuel capacity, if you like, to, um, to take more than hundred tons to basically anywhere in the solar system at that point. Um, there are there are better ways of doing it, but if you needed to do it with just one spaceship, you could do that. Um, uh, which includes landing on Mars, landing on the Moon, and you could land on Venus, though you wouldn't survive on the surface for very long. You could land on Mercury, you could land on any of the Jovian moons, you can land on any of the asteroids, all of those things, uh, and and not just land on them. You can land on them and then you know drop a hundred tons of cargo out the side. So that's really a transformative capability, right? We've kind of drawn a circle around the solar system and and said, you know, if we can build a rocket that has seven kilometers a second of Delta V, then all of these can be addressed with essentially the same system. And that's really transformative because it, it reflects a world where, um, where launch and cargo delivery capacity is post-scarcity. It's, it's no longer something where you, you say, well, what is the best, you know, Atlas V that I can get from, um, you know, from, from ULA and how fast can that get me to Pluto? Okay, I have 500 kilograms, so I'll design a new spacecraft from scratch that fits into that 500 kilogram capacity. It's, it's a case of like, well, if the minimum spend is hundred tons, you know, I don't have to worry about mass so much anymore. Um, so I've got some numbers here, which is um, if we need a million tons of cargo on Mars in 20 years to build a, build a city there, then um, that means about hundred thousand tons of cargo per launch window. There's a launch window every two years or so. Um, which means that uh, in order to get 100,000 tons of cargo from low Earth orbit to Mars, you need about a million tons of fuel in low Earth orbit, which means that you need about a million tons uh, annual uh, launch capacity from the Earth to low Earth orbit. Um, and then most of, most of the cargo, if you like, that is launched from Boca Chica 
uh, or from the Cape to low Earth orbit is fuel to refuel the starships in low Earth orbit so they can get elsewhere. Um, and it's just kind of an exciting, an exciting prospect. Um, it really kind of looks beyond the era when, when uh, space exploration is, you know, a lot like, um, a lot like climbing Everest in the early days. Um, so this is this is my worst slide because I know you can't read it, um, but it's a delta v map of the entire solar system, and um, and I found this. It's I credit it to a Reddit user, Curious Metaphor, whose name I, I don't know, um, and it it basically shows the change in speed necessary to get between all the destinations in the solar system. And then this part, which you probably can read, is the zoomed in portion of the inner solar system. And um, ignoring the fact that, you know, launching stuff to the sun is actually incredibly difficult. Um, the hardest step in this entire, um, uh, you know, I guess Venus surface is, is a pain as well, but the, the hardest step in this entire um, entire area, which is, you know, anywhere you can get within a couple of years of fly, flying from Earth is getting from Earth to low Earth orbit. That's nine kilometers a second. And then from there to the moon, even from there to the moon and back is less than that. Uh, from there to Mars is less than that. From Mars and back is less than that. Um, and so once, as, as um, Heinlein once said, uh, low Earth orbit is halfway to anywhere. Um, and once you have something like the Starship that's able to do seven kilometers a second of Delta V, you know, 2.44 plus 0.68 plus 0.09 plus 0.39 plus 0.92, you know, is, is a very small number. Um, and so, uh, you know, it is possible to start sending starships all these places. And if you're launching, you know, a couple of hundred of them a year, then suddenly I feel like the planetary exploration program that's run by NASA and other space agencies should be much more around the, you know, around the idea of, well, we're going to send one every year your payload will be ready or it's not, but if it's not, there'll be one next year. So don't worry. Um, which I feel like is, is the only way we can really get past um, the current kind of cost and risk spirals that drive these ever more expensive and more time consuming missions that, you know, have at best incremental improvements in capability of a previous missions. All right. At this point, I'll just take a quick interlude to talk about fame in the blogosphere. And as I said, I've been writing blogs for years and, um, this is a, a fairly typical blog example. Um, I, I designed and 3D printed a, a jet engine. Um, and anyone who knows anything about jet engines would be like, that's a terrible design. And that's kind of true, but it's also the size of my thumb. In fact, you can see it somewhere. Yeah, there it is. Like, let's say GE is not going to be calling me about this anytime soon. But, um, you know, and, and then I, uh, I took it to a friend's place and we hooked it up to some, some uh, propane and, and fired it. And as you can see, it runs quite rich, which is, um, well, I mean, it's kind of what you would expect from a jet engine that's the size of your thumb. And, um, and I thought this was pretty sick. And, and I got 47 hits on my blog after I published it. And that's about normal, you know, and if we subtract my immediate family, that's about 40, 40 people out there who take a routine interest in what I'm writing about. And that's fine. That's, that's my audience. That's who I've been writing for for years. And, and that's kind of how I understand these things. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise for me when I, about halfway through writing a series on, on random space stuff, um, wrote the SpaceX Starship's a very big deal, you know, about the same time as the, the full-scale Starship mock-up had been rolled out and got 88,000 hits, um, you know, uh, that, that month. Um, <laughs> It was a bit of a surprise, um, a pleasant surprise, but a bit of a surprise. Um, so uh, it, it seems that, you know, 
I mean, I guess every journalist knows that if you put Elon Musk somewhere in the text, you know, you'll increase your readership. But but even even taking that into account, there was something something here that really is is keying into um, something that you know obviously tens of thousands of people are deeply excited about and and you know, very kind of interested in learning more about. And so that was a pretty cool pretty cool thing to uh, to write about and uh, to understand. Um, okay, I'm gonna have a quick quick look at. Um, at questions and stuff uh, here, because I think we're about to change something here. Oh my goodness, lots of questions. Okay, um, can I talk more about the zero G refueling technologies underpinning assumption for this architecture? Um, I don't know much about it. Um, I know that uh, SpaceX got a contract from NASA to do some demonstration work in that area. Um, I think that it will be non-trivial, but I also don't think it'll be particularly hard compared to the magnitude of the capabilities of the team. Um, uh, Jeffrey Greenblatt, you're right about Venus surface number, but uh, in terms of the gravity, but taking into account air resistance, um, it would be about that, about what is written there. Um, Brad, JPL colleagues starting to absorb mission possibilities opened up by Starship. Um, I didn't really address this in the, in the mainstream of the talk, but it is my perception that um, Basically, uh, the rest of NASA, including JPL, is being extremely slow on the uptake uh, when it comes to absorbing the possibilities for what uh, Starship can and should do for their programs. Um, and I think it's it, this is actually pretty risky, and I'm happy to talk about it openly because obviously there's an upside, right? You can say, well, you know, cheap, cheaper launch is good. I'll be able to launch my stuff more cheaply. And I think NASA has kind of finally caught on to this idea when the, the Falcon Heavy is, is winning contracts to launch stuff, uh, and that's great. Uh, and also some other government agencies. Um, but uh, there's also a downside, right? And the downside is um, if JPL is in the business of building billion dollar rovers that weigh one ton every decade, and that's kind of the mainstream of their business. And then the launch cadence goes from, okay, we launch a ton every decade to Mars to um, actually now you have to, you have to launch a hundred tons and we're launching it every two years. Um, and the cost of the launch is around about a hundred million dollars. Sorry, sorry, like a hundred million dollars for, uh, for those hundred tons. Um, then then spending a billion dollars on one ton of machinery to go there uh, when the delivery cost is 0.1% of that, it's about a million dollars for a ton, uh, becomes very, very unbalanced. And this is a problem because, because there's no one on earth who can make rovers as well as JPL for a billion dollars a ton. But there are probably dozens of companies out there that can make rovers for a million dollars a ton that work just as well and just aren't made of titanium filigree. Um, and so this is something that, you know, obviously me and my, and my colleagues at NASA who, who, who think about this in the same way are, are aware of, but it hasn't really filtered, filtered in and then filtered back out of the, of the, of the Borg, as it were. Um, uh, Al Globus has asked about space solar power. We might take that in the Q&A. Um, different versions of Starship besides Lunar Crew and Cargo, um, maybe, I don't know. Um, and Dennis Donovan says less applications for SLS. Again, that's kind of besides the point um, because Starship wasn't really built as a response to SLS. Starship was built in response to its set of core requirements, which are quite different from SLSs. Um, and as a result, you know, just because the Starship happens to invalidate the, the reason for the existence of the SLS, um, the SLS in its own way did that already. So that's a complicated thing. Um, Brad says, I have a colleague who was involved in the 2020 astrophysics decadal survey and was surprised how we're unaware of their starship. 
um, yeah, that's um, uh, yeah, it's, it's deeply unfortunate, I think. And, and and to be fair, it's a bit hard for the the astrophysics decadal to to say, oh well, you know, we're going to take we're going to take into account the existence of a space launch system which is still not orbital, right? It hasn't hasn't launched, and and what it says it can do is is such a huge step change in terms of capability over what has been done in the past that it's impossible for us to really um, you know, take it seriously. And I understand that. It's the decadal's job to be extremely conservative in their recommendations. Um, but there, there are sections within NASA whose job it is, is not the same as the decadal's. And I think they should be taking this a little more seriously. Um, okay, Victor Cook uh, says, what stage of development is the Starship? Stay tuned. Dave Nordling says, Starship invalidates the SLS. Um, yeah, I have a blog about that. Um, and uh, okay, I think the commentary is getting slightly out of control here. Um, oh, and Jonathan says, will SpaceX be developing technology to create liquid methane on Mars or will another company be handling that? I'm going to address that later on. All right, it's been fun. Let's continue with the talk. So, um, so I wrote this blog about two years ago, and, uh, and now obviously everyone's caught on, um, which is super cool. That's why I wrote the blog. And uh, dozens of people are now covering the build in South Texas full time. Like they're living down there, they're driving by, they're flying planes, they've got telescopes set up, they're streaming it. Um, the, the capabilities of the telescopes that people are pointing at, these, at this thing, like every minute and photographing and counting every rivet is really quite debilitating. I think at one point Elon said that like, there are people on the outside paying more attention to the design than the designers on the inside. Uh, and then here's just a list, and I put this here for, for in case anyone wants to pull up the, the slide deck later on, um, of, of all the Twitter people who I follow who are like actively following this build and comment commenting on it and understanding it or doing modeling or infographics or whatever. And this is not exhaustive by any means, um, but this will get you started. Um, and then there's obviously detailed threads on Reddit, NASA Spaceflight. So I'm, I'm quite certain that by this point, there are many, many people out there on the outside of SpaceX who know a lot more about, you know, the intricacies of, of the Starship design than I do, um, which is good. I'm very happy about that. Um, so uh, this goes back to that question of Starship development history. Um, so I think it's clear that Starship was always going to be a BFR, which stands for Big Fabulous Rocket. Um, and various concepts have leaked out since about 2010. Like it's, it's obvious that people at SpaceX have been thinking about like, oh, what does the big rocket look like? Uh, since then. And very early on, it was just like a, a scaled up version of the Falcon 5 uh, with, a, with a scaled up version of the Merlin engine. Um, and then in 2016, we had the Mars Colonial Transporter and Raptor engine, um, which was this 12 meter diameter carbon fiber rocket. Um, and then they scaled it down a little bit, switched to stainless steel, like threw away all their tooling for, for carbon fiber. And so what we're seeing, you know, in this, in this trend here from left to right is, um, is active iteration and development in real time. Uh, and the other main change has been the aerodynamic features of the of the landing system. So uh, we switched to kind of a delta wing, then to this like tri wing, and then these flap systems here. Uh, and and the kind of the design impetus behind that, which will change again in future, like it's been discussed that they're going to move these flaps uh, further towards the back of the of the plane, so that they're not in the supersonic flow regime, or so the hinge is not in the in the supersonic flow regime. Um, it's just about ensuring that that the, the Starship itself is able to maintain control in a wide range of uh, atmospheric uh, environments, uh, densities, uh, so Earth on Mars or whatever, um, and, and mass distributions. So it might be full of fuel and have not much cargo or vice versa. Um, and if, if you've ever done skydiving, you'll understand why it's possible to do that with, with these flat things, um, because they're not generating lift. So the balance requirement is, is much, much relaxed. 
Um, and I, I expect that we will see substantial kind of design changes uh, going forward as well. Um, but in the meantime, um, especially since they started building stuff down in, in Texas, um, really they're spending money to invest in the execution capacity of the team. So, so there's kind of this beautiful feedback loop between the designers who are like, oh, I think this will be easier to build and the people who are actually building it who say, oh, well, how about we do it this way? And then this kind of feeds back very quickly. Um, and yeah, they spend a lot of money on hardware that ends up in the pile out the back when they're done with it. But at the same time, they're not pretending that they already know everything there is to know about building rockets, which I think is the fundamental mistake um, that gets made when, when you know, more traditional rocket development companies set out with like a list of requirements and they, they burn down the requirements and they, they figure all the stuff out and they specify the design and they specify the tooling, they hand it over to the manufacturer and then they wait 20 years and then they're like, why did the rocket take forever to build and why when we launched it didn't it work properly? Well, it turns out that um, if the development system is robust to the reality of the fact that you will discover and learn about building rockets while you're doing it, then the final product will be better. Um, let's see. Um, I talked about uh, driving the overall design towards simplicity in manufacturing and low cost to orbit. Uh, that's, that's the only thing that really matters. Um, obviously, uh, Starship will, will dominate the global launch market in the same way that Falcon already has. Um, and in fact, it will cannibalize Falcon. Like the, the long-term plan for Starship is that SpaceX retires the Falcon. Um, and then it also enables uh, SpaceX to verticalize in adjacent industries with higher cash flow, uh, which is what Starlink is doing. Um, and then I'm going to skip over this section pretty quickly because I feel like most of you will be familiar with it. Um, but there's this amazing interview that, that uh, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, did with Elon at Starbase about two months ago. It was on YouTube. Um, and just towards the end of it, if you look closely, you can see Venus and, and Mars um, above the, the sunset, which I think is kind of neat. Um, and here, Elon kind of uh, laid out the design philosophy that they're employing to build Starship right now. Um, and the first requirement is, the first step is make the requirements less dumb. Um, and I picked the space shuttle here because it's really a good example of, of something where the requirements um, shot it in the foot from day one. Um, you know, the requirement that it be able to do a single, single orbit and land at the same launch site meant that it had to have these giant wings which were never really used. You know, like the, the capability these wings provided was never used and the vulnerability that they demanded to the design killed one crew. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's a good example. Like the requirements that went into space shuttle were way, way, way too, not only were they extremely demanding, which is fine. They were also um, perpendicular to like, like not aligned with its primary mission, which was getting stuff to space cheaply, right? Like, at no point did like, oh, well, getting back to the same landing site after a single orbit while the earth has turned in the meantime, um, that's not aligned with getting stuff to space cheaply. And so it's not really a surprise that when all was said and done, the space shuttle ended up being really, really expensive and really, really dangerous. Um, and so Elon just basically points out that it doesn't matter where the requirements come from. All requirements are wrong to some extent. All designs are wrong. So you've got to question the requirements. And this has to be part of your design loop. Um, the second part is try to delete parts or processes. He says, if you're not adding stuff back into the design at least 10% of the time that you've already deleted, you're not deleting it nearly enough. Um, there's this idea that, you know, we'd better put stuff in in case we need it. And anyone who's gone on a long backpacking trip will understand this principle that, um, you know, it's, it's better just to leave it behind and not have to carry it all day and then find you never used it. Um, and then he talks about having um, individual traceability for requirements. So, Instead of saying, oh, you know, the, the error loads department 
requires blah. You have to have like a person in the error loads requirement who's responsible, sorry, department who's responsible for that requirement so that you can, you can go and talk to them and be like, you know, why is this requirement there? Um, and this is something that's almost explicitly discouraged within many organizations um, that kind of do stovepiping and, and specialization and interface management. Um, but I think it's really important, especially if you're trying to build something that's as tightly integrated um, and high performance as a Starship or a rocket in general, that basically everyone treads on each other's toes and everyone has a pretty good picture for the overall system design. And then step three is simplify or optimize. And he says here that like the most common error of a smart engineer is to optimize something that should simply not exist. Um, and this is because part of the way we're trained is you take an existing problem and you just make it better instead of saying this problem sucks. Um, and, a, and a really good example of this is the BMW i3, which was kind of put into production around the same time as the Tesla Model S. Um, and in order to meet its requirements of range and cost and stuff like that, they went with a, um, a carbon fiber uh, body, um, which then led to a whole series of problems with uh, thermal expansion issues and the difficulty of modifying tooling and the expense of the tooling. Um, and, and it's not like BMW came up with this out of nowhere. Many people such as Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute had been advocating for carbon fiber structures for cars for a long time to reduce the total mass and reduce the amount of energy required to move them. Like it seems like a good idea. Um, but you know, I think in 2021 with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that, that cars that, that were brought to market with a carbon fiber structure, it wasn't a net benefit for the car. Uh, and it certainly wasn't a net benefit for the BMW i3. This car has written all over it, optimized, but optimizing the wrong thing. Um, so that's a good example. Uh, and then finally, sorry, step four is accelerate cycle time. So after you've done the first three steps, then you can step on the gas. Um, as my father once said, if you find yourself in a hole, step one is throw away the shovel. Don't just like dig faster. Um, and then step five is automate. And um, I think everyone loves robots and, and the power of automated manufacturing is very attractive to uh, people, particularly people in design space. Uh, but it's also important to realize that uh, they're not a universal panacea. They're actually their own system and have their own complexities and getting them to work properly is um, extremely complicated. So it's usually a good idea to start with something that, that works with uh, less automation and then add automation over time. Again, with the sole directive that you're increasing value and reducing cost. Um, and so just to kind of compare this, um, you know, it's not like these five things are, you know, 10 commandments that, that come down from heaven and tell us everything we need to do. These five requirements, um, or these five steps, if you like, uh, are very easy to defend once you've articulated them. Um, but if we compare it to other NASA flagship programs, which are essentially also spacecraft, uh, so we've got SLS, JWST, which is pictured here, finally has a launch date, um, Orion, Starliner, uh, Perseverance and um, our sample return and uh, the Ingenuity helicopter um, here, which is pretty neat, um, and the Hubble Space Telescope. We see that without exception, every single one of these programs are big, complex, troubled projects that are hurt by unnecessary complexity. You know, by the time this technician is integrating the spacecraft, he would know dozens and dozens of different systems and features on this spacecraft that, that shouldn't be there, that, that shouldn't have been done that way. But you know, this technician had no way of, of feeding that back to the design engineer. They had no way of allowing that, that uh, information to become known to the people who'd be designing the next generation system. They had no way of, of you know, essentially allowing the organization and the system to learn. The same thing goes with the, with the Mars rover, you know, billion dollar rover. Um, and then the helicopter itself was $15 million or something. Um, obviously the helicopter is substantially less sophisticated in terms of what it's capable of than the rover and much lighter. Um, but 
it's it's interesting to me because it shows that it is possible to build a high performance uh, space rated system and it's it's just done its 13th flight that can operate in the Mars environment for millions of dollars instead of billions of dollars, right? And so one of the things that, that JPL makes JPL really special is that even though their main business is charging NASA billions of dollars to make these rovers, they are able to, when they're making them on their own dime, make them much cheaper. Um, and I think, you know, it wouldn't hurt if given the resounding success of the Ingenuity Mars helicopter, NASA turned around and said, well, uh, we don't have any other Mars missions in the pipeline, Mars surface missions in the pipeline for you, except for Mars sample return. Um, but if you can build us a, uh, you know, a system that can launch 200 of these helicopters, um, because they're really small and light, um, then, then we will, we will give you $500 million every launch window to do that. Um, and then you'd have the ability for hundreds and hundreds of PIs to build small custom instruments and spectrometers and stuff and stick them on, on these uh, helicopters and, um, and fly them around on Mars. And I feel like that would be a really, you know, a really good step in, in this direction. So a system summary, and again, Tim Dodd has a one hour long video breaking this down, which I cannot hope to, to kind of replicate in terms of its thoroughness uh, or authoritativeness. Um, but Starship represents, you know, the first solid kick at the can really, the first um, truly ambitious project um, to achieve the holy grail of rocketry, which is the fully, fully and rapidly reusable rocket. Remember earlier in the talk, I mentioned there's 350 launch systems. None of them even got close. None of them could have gotten close. No amount of redesign work or anything would have ever gotten them close to a fully and rapidly reusable rocket. Uh, Starship here is the upper stage. It has a dry mass of about 100 tons, um, a fuel mass of about 1,200 tons, and a nominal payload of 150 tons, uh, combined with its high performance methane oxygen vacuum engines it's capable of over seven kilometers a second of delta v um the the value prop is 100 ton cargo in 100 ton increments anywhere at 10 million dollar cost so uh, for example when spacex bid starship for the human lander system part of the artemis program uh the contract called for a lander capable of nine or possibly 12 tons of cargo and spacex is like here's one i made earlier 100 tons is the minimum um and i think that contributed in some ways to it winning the contract. Um, and I really feel like this is, you know, you know admittedly a primitive and early stage uh, version of a system that really answers this question of how do we get low dollars per ton and high tons per year to orbit. So why is it so important to have this, to solve this holy grail of rocketry? Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about constraints to space operations because this may be less obvious to some people. But um, historically, um, mission and system design is incredibly constricted by mass constraints. Um, when I say all oh, the Mars rover is a ton, it's it's a miracle of engineering that the entire Mars rover was able to fit into one ton, and that those instruments that they have on board, which are as good or better than equivalent instruments that take up entire rooms of Earth-based laboratories, are able to fit in that system. Um, but this mass requirement in turn affects schedule, cost structure, volume, material, material choices, labor, power, thermal, guidance, navigation, control, everything under the sun. A JPL is a, a kind of a loosely flying close-knit formation of like 500 or so subject matter expert teams, each of which has a different subspecialty. And many of those, most of them, I'd say, come together to help build something like this rover. 
Um, uh, and each of them is responsible for a different subpart of that system. And part of the reason that you have to have hundreds and hundreds of subspecialist teams is that in order to hit these mass and cost and schedule and volume and material choice and so on requirements for that particular subsystem, you need to be the world expert at it. Right? This is not something where you can go and, and kind of slap together a, a billy cart in the backyard uh, out of spare pieces of wood and wheels that you stole from somewhere. This is everything in this is kind of custom, custom manufactured, custom machine. Um, and so it's really, because it's hand-built, it's a little bit like making steel before the Industrial Revolution. It was possible, um, but it was extremely expensive. It took a lot of work, you know, a lot of muscle power, um, and you end up with a mediocre and a very small product. You know, like people could make a sword here or a cannon there, but no one was saying, oh, let's build skyscrapers out of steel when the only way to make steel was for, you know, um, in, in the Japanese case, for example, uh, you know, three very muscular men swinging hammers, smashing little bricks of, of iron back and forth and, and building up those, those layers to get the appropriate material properties. Um, and this goes right back to antiquity, antiquity when the, the Romans were able to make steel as well, but, um, but you know, very, very small quantities of it. Um, and so Starship, you know, the idea of Starship, if you like, lifts this mass constraint. The next generation Mars rovers uh, will not need to spend all their engineering bandwidth uh, tracking the mass of their subsystems to a tenth of a gram, which is like the mass of a postage stamp um, on a system that weighs one ton. Um, you know, they won't need to machine the whole thing out of a solid cube of titanium. Like this wheel here is machined out of a out of basic, almost like a cubic meter of, of um, aluminium. Uh, and it's machined down to the, the thickness of a Coke can, which is one of the reasons that it ends up with these holes in the wheels. Um, you know, why do we make the wheels twice as thick? Well, it won't fit on the rocket then. But with Starship, well, you could fit 50 of this on the Starship and have room to spare. So maybe we'll give it thicker wheels. There's also a, um, there was a design flaw with these wheels, obviously. Uh, and if you're a mechanical engineer, then I'll talk about it with you in the Q&A. Um, so historically speaking, you know, Bob Zubrin and, and all these other people um, have come up with, with concepts for um, crewed missions to the moon or to Mars. Um, which have always labored under these impossible constraints, right? Even Mars Direct, which kind of envisioned something like two SLSs per, per mission. Um, the amount of cargo capacity that was available to the mission, and this includes the Apollo program, is really like you can measure it in increments of like what you can fit in the back of an F-150. Uh, in many cases, like in the Apollo program, the total like mass of the ascent module, you could have fit in the back of a Ford F-150. And that's great. And I mean, it's it's wonderful that we were able to do the Apollo program back in the 60s, but um, but there's no way to go about, it's no, it's, it's no way to build a city. There's no way to go and build a city with, uh, with you know, five or 10 or a hundred F-150s worth of gear. You need to be talking like container ship loads. Um, and so it really takes time to shift perspective uh, about Starship. What does is, what is your mission design look like um, when 100 tons is the minimum spend and there's a discount if you buy more than 10 per year. And really one of the things that motivated me to write this blog two years ago was that when now that Starship, you know, the, the mock-up had been built, all the usual players came out of the woodwork and said, oh, with a Starship, I could, you know, send my big mission off to Saturn. And, um, and Robert Zubrin said, oh, with a couple of Starships, you know, I can get something a lot like Mars Direct off the ground. And... Um, <clears throat> The moon people were saying, oh, with a couple of starships, we can set up a factory on the moon and finally do our, our ISRU demonstration where we make hydrogen or something on the moon. But, but really, that's kind of misusing the tool, right? Because, because Starship is not just like, oh, we'll just build a couple and that'll be done, right? Starship is, is like, it's like the 737 of, of spaceships. It's like with, with a Starship, we can suddenly talk about a, a budget for material flows from the surface of the earth 
to other planets that we can measure in thousands of tons per year. And so you need to think, and I have this fire hose of technology. What do I do with it? Right? I'm no longer like, you know, trying to put out the fire with a cup of water at a time. I have a fire hose. What can I do with it? And it really changes everything. Uh, so one of the most obvious things that they're able to do with it is, is Starlink. And obviously Elon Musk and Warren Buffett had that public argument a few years ago about like whether or not moats were good for businesses. And Elon's point of view was, uh, no, the only thing that matters is, is innovation and pace of innovation. And um, whereas Warren Buffett has often talked about the importance of moats that protect a competitive advantage for his companies in Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but it turns out that, sorry, Elon, your companies have a moat, which is that they're able to launch their Starlink satellites. You know, talk about ambition. Is 60 satellites stacked up. Like you mean business if you're launching 60 satellites at a time um, for about, you know, probably less than $300,000 per satellite, maybe as low as $100,000 per satellite. Uh, when the, the competition, OneWeb, um, has to kind of get launches on Soyuz um, at a much lower cadence, obviously, but also they're paying, you know, 10 times as much per satellite and the satellites aren't as good. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really tough prospect uh, for competitors in this space until uh, someone else manages to do the reusable rocket thing. Um, communications is, is a much larger market than launch. Uh, SpaceX is basically already taken over the, the launch market, saturated it, um, which is worth, you know, a couple of billion dollars a year um, with the exception of like, you know, Russian spy satellites or something. Um, but uh, communications is a trillion dollar industry and, and Starlink is really, you know, SpaceX's um, committed effort to make some noise in that industry and, and ultimately, you know, encircle the earth in enough satellites and enough bandwidth, they can run the internet from space. And then I had this, this neat calculation here, which is that if you um, assume that Starlink uh, will charge about 10 cents a gigabyte and um, each Starship launch costs $10 million and there's a 10% profit margin, then the marginal profit um, to SpaceX for each bit transmitted through the Starlink network is um, enough to, to uh, transport one cubic micron, which is a millionth of a meter of stuff to Mars, which is like the size of a small bacteria. So, so if you think like, if I stream some show on Netflix, how much cargo does that pay to me to move to Mars? Well, each bit of, of that movie or something is, is one bacteria worth of stuff. Um, so once you've got a few million people streaming Netflix, then we're starting to talk about, you know, hundreds of millions to tens of billions of dollars of revenue, which is a pretty cool thing. Um, then in terms of other low earth orbit applications, aside from communication satellites, um, there's the suborbital transport. And maybe I should have talked a bit more about that because this is AIAA, but, um, but I'm kind of dubious about it just because of the noise constraint. Um, I, I feel like, um, yeah, we'll see. Um, then tourism is very exciting because we've got Inspiration4 going up this week. Um, and then there's giant space stations. And of course, I love the idea of these giant Stanford Taurus space stations. And, um, and here, of course, we've got a mock-up of Starship um, and uh, the ISS docking in space. And um, you know, it's kind of interesting to me that the ISS took 30 years and $400 billion to build. And the Starship, which is arguably already capable of going to orbit, just not necessarily landing, hasn't been demonstrated yet, um, has, has about three times the internal volume of the, um, maybe four times the internal volume of the entire space station. So like that's kind of a, a really nice image of this change. Um, and I think, well, part of the problem right now is that, is that um, if you're a the NSF or, or a private company and you want to do experiments on the space station, um, once you strip away the various, um, you know, starter rates and stuff like that, it works out to be about four or $5 million per person 
per day to do work on the space station. And that's a lot of money, right? A grad student on earth um, will cost you about, uh, you know, 20 or $30,000 a year, a year to get a grad student to sit at a, at a lab bench and do chemistry experiments or something like that. Um, and so in order for it to be worthwhile to do the same sorts of experiments, but in zero gravity at a million times the cost, um, you know, that's, that's really a tough call. And that's really why I think we have not seen an explosion of, of demand and use usage for uh, private um, scientific research or development in space. And I think with, Star with Starship, it'll be possible to build space stations uh, maybe a thousand times more cheaply. And so it may be possible to operate a laboratory environment on a Starship constructed satellite, a uh, space station for more like Antarctica prices. You're talking like, you know, $2,000 per person per day, um, or maybe $5,000 per person per day instead of $5 million per person per day. Um, and I think that at that cost, there'll be many more organizations that are able to and want to spend the money on doing research in space uh, on whatever it is they do. I have no idea what those things are. I think a lot of people have ideas about what that might be, whether it's you know uh, optical fibers or something like that. Um, but I think that Starship gives us the ability to empirically test the price elasticity of induced demand for low Earth orbit manufacturing, research, construction, orbital tourism, whatever it might be. Um, and if it turns out that, you know, the if it turns out that Starship is able to deliver people and stuff to low Earth orbit for a cost that's low enough that there is substantial demand for it, that would be super cool. And then that would be a step in the direction of these major space stations. I'm I don't maybe I just can't imagine how that would work. I don't have a, a clear picture of how that will work. Um, but at least we'd have the ability to test it. All right. So I'm going to go into lunar applications, but first I'm just going to quickly check the chat window and see if there's any, um, if it'll let me. There we are. See if there's any particularly burning questions. Okay. I'm, I'm actually struggling somewhat to to see the um, to kind of uh, parse the questions on that, so I'll I'll, I'll go I'll go through to Q and A in, in about ten minutes, and then then we can talk uh, together about that. Um, so lunar applications are the next obvious step, and here we have a really nice picture of of you know Moon Base Alpha um, with some Starships unloading cargo, um, and and obviously like as of today, the human lander system programs in limbo as they all litigate each other, um, but I think it's it's fair to say that that under the Artemis program, the original concept of operations, the CONOPS was deeply troubled. It, it, it struck me as being something that was trying to please too many different constituencies and wasn't really oriented towards building a system that would scale to being able to build a big base and operate it. Um, even though they did kind of say, oh yeah, it, would, it will do that maybe someday. Um, but but it, if you look at the responses to the HLS contract, um, you know, it's, it's not really possible to get to a, a decent sized lunar base with, with two of these different options. Um, but it's, it's important to note that of the three of these, um, you know, the winner, SpaceX, has kept external development off its critical path. Unlike the other two, SpaceX doesn't have to wait for SLS to work. It doesn't have to wait for Orion to work. It doesn't have to wait for Starliner to work. It doesn't have to wait for Blue Origin to deliver engines to ULA for Vulcan to work in order that their mission can proceed, in order that they can bring stuff to, to the moon. Everything that's on the critical path is under their control. And I, I think that as time goes on, we will see that principle extended and um, we will see, uh, unless there are 
you know, fungible and available uh, systems in spacesuits, rovers, power systems, crew transfer, and so on, that SpaceX will, will um, spool up their own research and development in those particular areas so that they're able to make sure that they're not depending on third-party suppliers who have a different understanding of the level of urgency required. Um, and one of the key things to note about Starship is that even though in the HLS system, it nominally is transferring crew from the, um, from the Lunar Gateway to the surface and back, um, it's actually capable of flying from low Earth orbit all the way to the moon and back without refueling, um, carrying you know, a lot of mass. In fact, you could put um, both the national team lander and the Dynetics capsule inside the Starship, fly it from low Earth orbit to the moon, drop it off, and then fly the Starship back to Earth. Um, and it wouldn't run out of fuel. Like it has enough fuel to do that. And I think that's, that's important to note and important to understand. And this is some, some calculation that I did. But um, if you fuel it in geostationary orbit, uh, well, uh, transfer orbit, um, then you can, you can move hundreds and hundreds of tons of stuff to the moon. Like in this case, 600 tons of cargo to the moon, which is, it's kind of mind blowing. Like 600 tons of cargo to the moon in a single flight is more cargo than humanity has ever launched to, to orbit in a single year up to this point. And so if you think, well, what would that be? That's a good question. What, what, <laughs> what do you put on the moon if you're, if you're doing 600 tons? Um, and just to refresh your memory, this is the kind of default human lander system program concept of operations for Artemis. So we've got the uh, Falcon Heavy, which is partially reusable, launching the gateway element that uses solar electric propulsion to go to near retrograde halo orbit of the moon. Got three Vulcans or possibly new Glens launching a transfer descent and ascent element that dock with the gateway. We've got the SLS uh, launching the Orion capsule to the gateway. And because the gateway is in this weird hazy, uh, halo orbit, there's a phasing requirement. So these launches can only occur um, you know, one or two days per month. Uh, and then the SLS it turns into a $2 billion rocket on the seabed after a single use. Um, and then the crew transfer into the ascent stage they fly to low lunar orbit, ditch the transfer stage, land on the surface with less than 12 tons of cargo capacity. And then they stay there for a couple of days and then they turn around and fly back to the gateway, go back to the Orion and fly the Orion back to Earth. Um, seems complicated. Um, in contrast, the Artemis and Starship, you know, uh, sorry, I should say an Artemis and Starship concept is um, you know, 200 and so, or 300 tons or so of, of cargo, transferred in orbit to a single lunar starship that's used expendably to move that cargo to the lunar surface with, um, I wrote here 12, but the starship is already lighter than it was when I did this calculation. So eight reusable fully uh, tanker flights would be adequate. And then a crew launch, and then another eight reusable tanker flights flies that to the moon to with 25 tons of net mass plus 320 tons plus a lunar surface hab. So if you had say 10 crew on board this, they could live there for three months without a problem. And with another 320 20 tons of stuff, they could all have their own personalized Mars, uh, sorry, moon rover and, um, and you know, more space to deal with than people who live at the South Pole. Um, and they could live there for years, uh, constrained really only by uh, physiological um, limits rather than by ma mass limits or like running out of food. Uh, and then when it's done, it turns around and flies back to uh, low Earth orbit where this is a lunar starship lacking fins and stuff. Uh, lacking flaps, the, the crew transfers to a, a regular starship that then lands them back on Earth. Um, and so unlike the, the kind of default 
concept of operations where you've got you know one, two, three, or possibly four different launch systems, three of which don't currently work, um, a gateway, a transfer descent element, uh, descent element, and Orion. That's five different spacecraft of which currently uh, one has ever flown in space and didn't work properly, um, and then multiple transfer docking crew type transitions. There's just a single spacecraft with uh, with a variant that just involves deleting some parts, um, and that's it. And, and every single part of this is in principle reusable, uh, although the uh, the lunar surface have in this case would not be coming back to Earth. Um, so I think it's it's really compelling, um, just kind of how much complexity this design takes out. Um, Mars applications is kind of what it was designed around in the first place. So again, we do the whole like uh, low Earth orbit refueling thing, flies to Mars, it uses its capability to land on, uh, to use atmosphere to slow down, lands on Mars. Um, with a couple of hundred tons of stuff. It has a, uh, a chemical plant on the surface that produces methane and oxygen from ambient water and carbon dioxide, refuels, takes a while, uh, and then flies back to, flies back to Earth. Um, again, far simpler than any other concept. It's far simpler than Mars Direct, single stage return. It's far simpler than the system that was used in, in Andy Weir's book, The Martian, which is mathematically rigorous. Um, it's far simpler than, um, you know, any other serious uh, contender for, for Mars exploration architecture. I incidentally, you could do Mars sample return like this as well. There's no need to have humans on board. Um, this is kind of esoteric, but I just kind of talk about um, launch windows and pork chop plots and stuff. So this is the reason that um, you can only launch to Mars every two and a bit years. Um, yeah, I think I'll skip this for now. Um, and then this is talking about entry, descent, and landing. And the kind of salient point here is that the, the Mars rovers represent more or less the limit of what's possible to land on Mars in terms of mass if you're using a blunt body re-entry system because it has a fairly low lift to drag ratio of maybe 0.25. Um, but the, the Starship is able to actually use its body side on as a lifting body and generate a lift to drag ratio of perhaps two or three, which means that it can, um, it can enter this horizontal flight phase um, at a higher altitude with more mass on board uh, without smashing into the surface, which is a definite plus. Um, and in fact, it will come in so fast um, because it'll be on a fast transfer orbit that when it first enters the atmosphere, it'll be upside down relative to this picture because it'll need to use its lift to stay closer to the planet instead of shooting back off into space. And then as, as it slows down, it'll spin around and use its lift to maintain altitude as it continues to burn off speed, which is pretty neat. And again, designed in from scratch um, to be able to do this. Uh, and then, yeah, here's an image of it taking off to fly back to Earth. Um, it turns out that um, that if you need another Starship, it's probably easier just to make another one on Earth than to fly one back from the Moon or to fly one back from Mars. Um, and it turns out that the the cost kind of cutoff for that is somewhere around two hundred million dollars. So if it's more expensive uh, to build a Starship than two hundred million dollars, it's cheaper to fly one back from the Moon and use it again than to um, than just make another one. But everything I've seen suggests that the current Starlink unit cost is way cheaper than $200 million. And so it's more likely that if you need more Starships, we'll just build more factories for them here on Earth. Um, <coughs> and then obviously this is the, the, final, the final idea, the final concept, which is this terraformed Mars thing. And I'll just take a quick break here to have a look at the actual terraformed Mars. So this is a project I did a few years ago where I did a, a full planetary scale hydrological simulation. 
and then um, and you can download the file for this from somewhere on my website and dump it into Google Earth yourself. It's about 20 gigs. And then you can zoom in and click around and see which which craters end up having waterfront, which ones don't. Um, so I think that's it's kind of neat. The mistake that you see, particularly with um, the version of this that you can see in the cafeteria at SpaceX, is that most artists think there's a lot more water on Mars. And so you end up with oceans that are much larger. Um, I don't think there's quite that much water, but there's still enough to have some large lakes and oceans and rivers and things, some waterfalls. So anyway, I thought that would be worth showing you. Let's go back to the talk. All right, so the final section I'm going to talk about really is infrastructure. So like the, the plan for SpaceX, if you like, is to build a nation on the moon, to build a nation on Mars, to put logistics below the API so that it feels and works like Google, sorry, like Amazon Prime. Right? It's kind of click a button and 100 tons of stuff shows up. You don't have to worry about making everything as a custom one-off out of titanium so that it's so that it's light enough. It becomes a conveyor belt of space. Um, and so the appropriate analogy is not something like Hillary and Tenzing climbing Everest back in the 50s. Uh, and you're kind of eking out this narrow win at this by the skin of their teeth. Um, the appropriate analogy is the Berlin airlift in which allied forces transported uh, 2.3 million tons, which is about what we need on Mars, um, into Berlin in 1948 and in over 15 months. Um, and they were averaging around 3,000 flights per day, which is one about one every 30 seconds. Um, and these DC-3s were capable of transporting three and a half tons per, per flight. So Starship is, is much more capable than a DC-3 in terms of its cargo capacity, um, although it looks similar, it's nice and shiny, um, but it doesn't just have to fly in from France, it has to fly to another planet that's 100 million miles away. So that's, that's kind of where the analogy breaks down. But but really, we need to think of you know, operating the Mars transportation system like this. You have a whole row of starships that are just getting loaded and unloaded from trucks. And then they all take off. And one after the next, they just keep landing at Berlin airport and dropping off all their stuff and then turning around and coming back or whatever the case may be. Um, so instead of having you know, a heroic Mark Watney individually growing plants in a greenhouse, which is kind of the typical frontier you know, outdoorsman story that we tell here in the United States by analogy to the, the 40 acres and a mule, you know, um, subsistence farmer kind of origin legend story for the United States. Again, not entirely reflected in reality. Um, we have giant industrial facilities um, like this gigantic uh, oil and gas refinement plant or this illustration that my friend Santiago did for me of, um, of you know, a, a giant uh, tensile structure um, full of big machinery and people and spaces and planets and cool like post-cubist art uh, architecture. It's really a, a very large, um, very large scale kind of concept. Um, <clears throat> so the final piece of the puzzle is um, you know, the Starship is the hard part really, like the ability to transport huge amount of stuff cheaply from earth to Mars um, is the hard part. Um, and Starship is, is going to need payload to do that, right? And now SpaceX could fairly easily, I would say, given the capabilities of their team, develop all this stuff themselves and build it. But it shouldn't be necessary. And I think it would be faster if other major industrial companies said, oh, look at that. You no longer need to be as clever as JPL to build a Mars rover because we no longer have to make the whole thing 900 kilograms. Um, we can just take our existing machinery and like 
upgrade the seals a bit and put in some like low temperature lubricants and a vacuum compa compatible uh, hydraulic power pack and we're good to go. So like Earth to Caterpillar, Boeing, Lockheed, DuPont, any of these companies, there's hundreds of them. Do you read me? Like it's time to start thinking about spooling up an internal R&D team, which is cheap in the grand scale of what your business does, even compared to your recruitment budget and, and coming to the table with a technically credible piece of the Luna or Mars base puzzle. And then Elon Musk and SpaceX like might leave your industry alone. Like he might not verticalize in your industry and figure out how to do it for a 10th of the cost and take your business away from you. Um, so, you know, build out a space division that's focused on, on iterating real hardware. And then like the recruitment and retention difficulties that all these companies face will go away, right? Like all the, the cool, young, talented engineers coming out of school want to go and work at Tesla and SpaceX. Um, they don't want to go and work for like fuddy-duddy old Boeing or whatever, because uh, it's pretty clear to them that, you know, the interns are getting to work on cooler stuff at SpaceX than any new guy gets to work on at any of these other companies. And so, um, you know, I feel like if these other companies kind of, you know, in a, in a enclosed environment adapted this design methodology and structure and uh, zeitgeist, you know, this idea that they could really improve their own business as well. Um, there's a lot of upside. And so these are the nine key pieces that are needed to build a base uh, on the inside of which you can use more or less off the shelf industrial parts, you know, like bits of factories and pumps and stuff like that. But you still need to build a terrarium. You still need to build a system that enables humans to live in this environment without dying. <clears throat> those parts are a solar farm to produce gigawatts of power, uh, an air miner to distill CO2, nitrogen and water from the Mars atmosphere, a water miner to produce huge quantities of water because ultimately we want to, we will succeed if we can minimize our constraints. And, and one constraint is water availability. And so like a closed system recycling 20 tons of water is great, but a well that's capable of producing uh, 100,000 tons of water a day is much better. Um, we need rock mining. We need the ability to, to extract aggregate and ore from, from places on Mars. In some cases, very remote from the original base. Um, we need a fuel plant that's capable of producing uh, methane and oxygen and also industrial hydrocarbons for lubricants and fuel in unlimited quantities. Uh, we're talking like something that makes a typical Louisiana oil refinery look quite small. Um, and it has to do synthetic production of these hydrocarbons from atmospheric CO2, which sounds a lot like what we kind of need to do on earth to deal with climate change. Hmm, interesting. Maybe setting up a business in this space could make money on earth as well as being useful on Mars. Uh, we need life support machinery. We can't just kind of take a system out of a nuclear submarine and put it on a Mars base. We need something that's like a little bit better. Um, we need heavy machinery telerobotics so that people are able to operate, you know, very, very large cranes and telehandlers and diggers and stuff without being physically present in the cab of that thing. This is, technology that already exists. Uh, Rio Tinto is a mining company in Australia that set up completely automated mines uh, in Western Australia. Um, we need pressure structures, um, essentially ways of producing pressurized volumes on the surface. And everyone says, oh, we'll build domes or something. I'm, I'm in general very, very, uh, in, very much in favor of building enormous pressurized volumes using um, uh, pressure stabilized tensile membranes. Um, just so you can enclose like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of, of volume. And so you don't have to deal with, you know, tetrising everything together to make it fit. You just say, oh, you want to spool up a factory to build um, you know, ball bearings? Here's a million square feet, get cracking. And then of course, spacesuits. So let's, let's head to the Q&A. Yeah, I'm 
All right. So if people who had questions in the chat can move them over to the Q and A, then um, then I will uh, I'll head to that. Does that sound reasonable, Ken? Yeah, yeah, excellent. And uh, uh, they can speak out uh, if, if they like. I think some of them already uh, uh, enabled or muted, but it's better they uh, you know click raise hand so we know the sequence. But if you want to call on somebody, you know, in the this to speak out, I think Dave has some question at the hour. Mr. Grover, he was talking about the solar power system. Uh, so maybe you can uh, you can share his views and everything. And Dr. Comex, Max, also have some thing you'd like to share. Looks like. Oh, maybe maybe Al. Uh, Al, okay. please speak out. Al? Oh, you're talking to me. Yeah, just to oh, okay. go ahead. I actually have two questions. One is uh, what's your take on space solar power? And the other one is that if you if you launch enough, you're gonna damage the atmosphere. Any idea of where that limitation is? Yeah. Um, Space-based solar power is a tricky one. Um, thanks, Brad. Um, for um, for the basic reason that uh, if you take take Starlink, for example. Starlink satellites generate about uh, four and a half kilowatt hours of power per orbit, and they transmit you know a certain amount of in a certain amount of data to Earth, which earns them a certain amount of revenue. And the revenue of them transmitting microwaves to Earth containing data is like a million times higher than if they were just to transmit that power that they'd received as microwaves uh, and turn it into electricity. Um, so it's, it seems fairly clear to me that that sending microwaves with data on them is is much more lucrative. In fact, it's lucrative enough that you can make money doing it. Um, yeah, as a communication satellite. Um, but fundamentally, electricity on the surface of the earth is just incredibly cheap. Um, and I've run the numbers on this. I have a couple of blogs on it that you can delve into if you're interested um, that show that there's basically no way to do that in space and then transmit the power to earth and make money. Um, it may be possible actually to do it the other way around. You could uh, transmit power from earth to space uh, and use it there rather than having a giant solar array for say a space station um, or, or a moon base. Um, but that, that's, that's kind of more marginal. In terms of atmospheric damage, um, <laughs> uh, well, the, the Starship exhaust products are carbon dioxide and, and water vapor, um, which are fairly benign um, compared to other rockets. And, um, and obviously the carbon dioxide is, is, uh, contributes to global warming. But if, if it came to the point that uh, launches of Starship were contributing you know, anything like, you know, say, aviation's contribution to atmospheric carbon dioxide, um, I think we've been in a place which would be, uh, I mean, just wild, just wild. The, the, the total amount of fuel that star, the Starship uses per launch is equivalent to like a small town's total consumption of, of gasoline. It's, it's, uh, it's really in the noise. Um, okay, heading over to um, question and answer. It, it really helps me if you, um, uh, if you type your answers there and I can read them and answer them as I go along. So Victor wrote, uh, I logged in late, what stage development is the Starship? I kind of already covered that, but um, as of now, they have, um, uh, uh, answering that now, um, uh, as of now, uh, Starship, they are kind of putting the finishing touches on Booster 5 and um, Serial Number 20 Starship, and they're going to do the orbital test launch uh, in the coming months, um, pending a, a FAA environmental review. So I think it'll get to the point where they're able to demonstrate that the Starship system is capable of doing orbital launch and, and re-entry and, and landing in the coming year. Um, but I, I would expect to see that the design continues to evolve from there. Um, uh, Ken, can you mute yourself, please? Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. Thanks. 
Um, Brad Neuberg wrote, uh, what role do you see for autonomous systems in space to build lunar and Mars cities? I'm machine learning so, uh, software engineer. So I'm wondering where you see the skills being applied once we have Starship's uh, abilities online. Um, I think it would be amazing if, um, if we were able to build uh, you know, truly useful autonomous systems that were able to build lunar bases and Mars bases. And I think that's definitely part of the overall system because um, really um, in terms of like the, the productivity of labor, um, there'll be a huge labor shortage on Mars. And, um, and so we'll need you know, people to become steadily more productive, like 1% more productive per day or something like that for decades at a time. And it's really only possible to do that by adding more layers of abstraction between the actual atoms getting fiddled with in a factory and the people who are pressing the buttons to make it happen. Um, and a good analogy for this is, um, is the development of, of software compilers over time. So like it's, it's pretty rare nowadays to find software engineers who are actively like manipulating bits, um, but it's pretty common for them to use an interpreted or a compiled language, which is like um, many, many levels of abstraction above the bare metal. <clears throat> um, Dana N says, what about larger one megawatt heat pipe reactors, space nukes? Um, I think nuclear power would be very useful on Mars, um, but I think that putting it on the critical path is asking for trouble. Uh, Jeffrey Greenblatt says, I'm curious about price trajectories for Starship. Where do you think it will be initially cargo and crew versions? And when do you think it will get to the $2 million a launch number Elon's quoted? Well, um, there's a difference here between kind of uh, all up cost and marginal cost. So, so really when you're thinking of, of the Starship launch cost um, as a business, you have to divide the total cost of development and of construction and of launch operations by, the, by whatever the person's paying or how many launches you're able to achieve. But I think ultimately you can kind of throw development costs away uh, and just kind of turn it into, you know, long-term debt. Um, and and then and then it becomes the question of like how many launches do you get per per starship? And then you can kind of amortize the cost of constructing it. And so, you know, I think that um, that the the functional constraint here is not really the cost of the launch, but it's it's how quickly we can fill up starships and launch them. I think that at this point, um, starship is going to need payloads uh, more than it needs. Um, more, more than the expense is stopping payloads from occurring, if that makes any sense. Um, <clears throat> Brad says, Brad Neuberg says, any Black Swan predictions you might make that would affect the predictions you've made? Hmm. Um, generally speaking, I'm actually very, um, very optimistic about, about the future. And I think, I think that um, there's a lot of very, very clever people who are, who are doing a lot of thinking about problems that humanity as a whole is going to encounter and making um, positive changes to help them. Um, obviously, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to control for, um, people being silly who have access to nuclear weapons. Um, but, but, you know, I guess we can continue to cross our fingers and hope for the best. Um, James Jutila says, as far as in-situ resources on Mars, do they have resources like thorium and uranium to build nuclear power plants? Uh, yeah, they do. Um, I mean, the, the Mars is, is made of atoms, same as earth. Um, I think it's it's probably a bit of a stretch to say that um, you'd find you, you're guaranteed to find concentrated ores on Mars because Mars's geological processes are far less mature than Earth's, uh, and so it may be the case that um, for for items that have extremely high value per mass, um, which thorium and uranium are definitely in that category, it'll be cheaper to import them from Earth than to produce them locally on Mars. But the other we could always find a, an asteroid out the back that's made of uranium, and then. That wouldn't be the case anymore. Um, okay, I'm running out of open questions here. Well, then, then now there's a couple of questions I want to speak out. Dennis, go ahead. 
Hello, Doctor. Um, I was wondering if you heard from Elon Musk that they can't build an 18-meter rocket, that 9-meter is pretty much at the limit as to what they can build. Uh, does that change at all your projections for how soon we can industrialize both low-Earth orbit and the moon and Mars? Um, well, personally, I think 18 meters is probably possible, but um, but not, I think 9 meters is adequate. You know, unless you have a particular payload that's wider than that, um, <clears throat> but you could always make a slightly wider fairing. One of the nice things about about the um, stainless steel structural design is that it's much simpler to analyze and construct if you need to do a variation. So if you need to make a slightly longer one or a slightly wider one, um, you know, with a with a conical section, you know, uh, it's called frustrum connecting the two, then that's uh, reasonably straightforward. Um, so anyway, I, I don't think that really changes much. Uh, like. Hmm. If, if it turned out that that was what changed things, that'd be pretty cool. I'll put it that way. Like if it turns out that that uh, that you know a few thousand launches of a nine meter starship isn't adequate to do what we need, uh, then that would imply that we've done a few thousand launches of a nine meter starship, and that would be pretty neat. Yeah, I think uh, uh, James, uh, Mr. James Sloan, has a question. So, uh, James, go ahead. Uh, I was wondering about uh, with their Hyperloop experience, how quickly do you see uh, building a mass driver on the moon? Um, hmm. That's a good question. Um, so you could build a mass driver on the moon, same as you can build one anywhere. The question is why? Um, and I think your question kind of presupposes that the audience has some knowledge of, of either um, Highland's book, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, or, um, or uh, O'Neill's uh, book about uh, using mass drivers to transport partially processed lunar ore uh, to to space stations nearby for processing, um, and I think both of those are pretty unlikely long term. Um, but I would have to be wrong. I'd, I'm sorry, I'd, I'd I'd love to be wrong. Um, you are. <laughs> yeah, I I think that um, if it turns out uh, if it turns out the mass drivers are the best way of getting material that we need off the moon, that'd be cool. Um, and, uh, and in particular, I'm, I think that's probably more sensible than, than processing lunar water to turn it into, into fuel and oxidizer and then using that to launch from the moon. Um, but I think long-term, the moon is so close to Earth that it would probably be easier just to move stuff up from Earth to get to it. But again, I don't know. I have no way of knowing uh, and I would love to find out. Yeah, I think um, uh, uh, Brad, Brad has a question. Brad, go ahead, you can speak up. And Dave, next. Um, sure. I was wondering, so, you know, obviously you've, so, you've focused on surface settlements so far, but I'm just wondering what kind of opinions or analysis you have on asteroid mining and resource use. And then, of course, you know, the kind of O'Neill vision as an extension of that, just from, from kind of an analytical level or opinion level. Thanks, Brad. Um, that's a very interesting question. And um, yeah, I've, I've written a couple of blogs on this as well. Um, it's a tough one um, because... Um, it turns out that there are a handful of materials on the earth that are so expensive. Um, we're talking like $50,000 a kilogram or some, or $50,000 a gram or something like that, um, that, uh, that the cost of transporting them from an asteroid back to earth or something is re relatively small compared to the cost of the material itself. Um, but, but the critical fact that's often missed by people who say, oh, well, if we find an asteroid that's full of palladium or something, we can make money is that 
Um, part of the reason that it's so expensive on Earth is that our industrial processes have really low demand for it. And so no one has ever gotten around to building a decent palladium mine, right? Or a decent uh, extraction system. And if that suddenly became like critical path for say the, um, the electrical vehicle industry or the, um, uh, you know, or, or computer computer industry or something like that, then then the price would come down really quickly, as it has in the past for for other materials that were previously pretty esoteric with low consumption rates. Uh, you know, essentially demanded by you know a handful of government research labs or something, uh, and then became the, on the critical path for something that was very important. Uh, and the second reason that that's important is that um, is that you know, aside from the fact that we don't know of any palladium asteroids. Um, the, the part of the reason that they're expensive is that they're, they're really scarce. Uh, and so, so I was going to say like, there's two separate problems here. One is that the, the market is really small, right? So even though that the dollar per kilogram is quite high, the overall dollars per year is really low. And in particular, much lower than you'd need to go to space. And the other problem is that the dollars per kilogram is high because they're scarce. And so if you suddenly have a demand for them, which means that that previous number, the dollars per year is high, then that cost would come down and you'd have no business case. And the other problem is that if the dollars per year stays high because still no one wants it, and then you go and get an asteroid that's full of it and you bring it back to earth, then suddenly the supply goes through the roof and the cost necessarily decreases unless you can do something like the beers and maintain a monopoly on your supply of a palladium asteroid. So I think that... Um, asteroid mining is is pretty out there. Uh, I don't think it's like a particularly good business case. Um, however, there's two important caveats to that. One is that obviously the ability to go to asteroids and move them around is incredibly important in terms of planetary protection and stopping them from smashing us when inevitably we find one that's going to hit us. Um, and the second is that um, if you are building a space station in deep space or on an asteroid, then obviously getting to the asteroid and being able to mine it, process it is extremely important. Um, it's just, it so happens that my personal view is that it's much easier to do the big space city thing um, on a surface of a planet. Um, I disagree with O'Neill in that regard. Um, but if you are at an asteroid, then obviously uh, mining it is a good idea. Um, Dave Nordling says, can you provide a further treatment of propellant transfer technology in a later segment? Um, the reality, Dave, is I don't know much about it. Um, so um, it, when, when someone does something about it, um, then I can write about it and maybe help communicate that to a more general audience. Um, but I just, you know, I think the reality is very few people know much about in-space propellant transfer. Obviously, it, it does exist. It has been done. The Russians have done it for many years. Um, it is possible. It's not forbidden by the laws of physics. Um, and I suspect that that's, you know, if it turns out that that's the really hard problem for SpaceX to solve, that would be very surprising to me. Um, well, oh, can you hear me, Dr. Hanber? Sorry, who's there? Uh, this is Dave Nordling. I'm sorry. Oh, I yes. finally so sorry. figured out how to unmute myself. Uh, thank you for your presentation. I, I'm, I'm very sorry if I came off overly negative. Uh, no, not at all. I, I, I really think challenging assumptions is important for the discourse. And I, and I thank you for at least you know, you've succeeded in one facet that uh, you're right. A lot of thinking has been very small. And uh, Starship is indeed a very big deal. But as a, as a career engineer, I, I can tell you there's, there's a lot of things that should be in this universe and they are not. <laughs> they are yes. a lot harder, more expensive, take a lot more time. And I, I, I completely support you in your goal to counteract a lot of the misconceptions in space journalism. But I, I think unbridled optimism is not helpful. So I... Okay. I certainly hope that you and I can uh, discord. You and I can converse in, in, in later iterations. I don't want to take up uh, too much of your time, but I, I did want to send my thanks for your presentation today. 
Thanks, Brad. No, I, I, I will insist on my optimism being strictly bridled from now on. Um, I think when I when I wrote the blog initially two years ago, I think there was a lot of you know potential showstoppers that really hadn't been explored yet. And um, one of the exciting things about watching this in real time is you see that SpaceX is thinking the same thing. And they're like, okay, what is the worst thing that could happen to us today? Let's understand that problem. Let's retire it. Let's understand the problem. Let's retire it. Let's understand. And, and the really exciting thing about it is that they're approaching this problem like A, they're spending their own money and B, they intend to succeed, um, which is a really kind of profound contrast to the other major NASA flagships, which have been operated by frankly, profiteering private contractors, exploiting contracts that they've written to treat them as cash cows and not to approach the problems like they intend to succeed. They're approaching the problem well, like they intend I, to make as much I, money I would, as possible. I, I would caution you against that broad brush assumption, though. I, yes, I, I, think, I, th my, I think it's important not to be pejorative will. in your assessment. I, I know a lot of people have that opinion, but... Uh, yeah. I can assure you that is, not, that is not the case. Companies are, that work for profit they charge what they need to charge because the most important thing is decades later, they're still in business. I understand. I understand. And like, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that Northrop Grumman should operate JWST for charity. Like, um, and I think that my, my readers uh, are accustomed to the usual level of, of subtlety that I'm able to inject here, which is that uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to attack any individuals, um, especially not the engineers who work on these programs who I have nothing but, but admiration for. Um, but it is fairly clear that if you look at these systems uh, you know, from a broad you know, um, systems level, that they are not functioning as well as they potentially could. Um, and, and if that was not the case, then we would not have these situations where the people whose only job it is to estimate what the costs and the schedule will be are so out of step with the reality of what the cost and schedule actually are. Um, and that reflects the fact that there's obviously some deep uh, structural um, concern or, or problem or inefficiency in the way that these programs have been executed historically. I think that's been recognized. I think major steps have been taken to try and uh, you know, right the ship slightly as far as uh, future contract development goes. Uh, and it'll be very interesting for me to see uh, and for everyone to see um, how successful they are in ensuring that, that um, programs are actually delivering value to the constituents um, at, you know, in a timely and, and kind of expeditious way. Um, but yeah, I, I take your point and I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that I've just kind of being grumpy. The whole point of of this uh, blog series was to kind of focus on on constructive and, and productive ways of talking about these things. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Hammer. Uh, next, I think uh, which, uh, we can let uh, Mr. Guido Grassinetti to speak out. Uh, he's our AIDO member, more than 70 years of membership. Uh, he's oh, wow. an amazing gentleman. So, uh, uh, so Guido, go ahead. Mr. Grassinetti, go ahead. Okay, uh, yeah, you answered this question before I joined the meeting, but what's the thrust of the first stage? Uh, you put me on the spot there. Um, I, I know off the top of my head that the thrust to weight ratio is 1.5. Um, and I think the thrust of each engine is about 30 tons and there's about 30 engines. So it's probably about, that doesn't seem right, 300 tons. This 30 engine is about, about 330, nine, about 9,000 tons of thrust. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but don't quote me on that. Um, many, I'm, I'm sorry how, I don't have a better answer for you. How many tons? About 9,000. Okay. Maybe say over 9,000. Yeah, so maybe this won't be practical, but I, I have a colleague that... Uh, 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 can build a booster uh, using uh, uh, fan jet engines because they can multiply the thrust of the fan engines. 
by a certain uh, technique that he uses with little winglets. And uh, in some cases, uh, uh, maybe not on a starship, but on, on smaller boosters, uh, you can use these as a first stage by gagging them and multiplying the thrust uh, that comes from the engine by at least twice, maybe three times. And uh, I use, uh, I use this ganged uh, set of engines as a first stage because it can, can reduce the, uh, the size of the, of the first stage that's being used to launch quite a few vehicles. And yeah. Well, I mean, the um, air launch vehicles like uh, Spaceship Two or, um, sorry, uh, White Knight Two and, um, and the, the one that we had to talk about just the other day, um, Strato launch, use, use lift. They use turbofan engines, they use wings to help them uh, leave the surface of the earth. Um, I'm personally a little dubious about the utility of those systems for like large scale launch systems, just because like 6,000 tons is a lot of cargo for a plane. Um, but, um, but certainly, you know, um, high efficiency, a higher efficiency systems are, are worth, worth exploring. Well, the, uh, the advantage is that you have specific, the specific impulse is so much greater than that of, that of rocket engines. It's about 20 times greater than yeah, that. Yeah, that's exactly right. At sea level, so between sea level and 40 and 50,000 feet, it's a great assist. And you yeah. can use a lot less fuel to get up to that, that altitude. Yeah, except you have 92 more miles to go. <laughs> That's all right, but you uh, you 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 make the second you make your first stage a little of the rocket smaller. You can make it cheaper that way. You use less rocket fuel. <clears throat> Thank you, Guido. <laughs> um, Victor might want to speak out. Victor, he could raise hand. Is that okay, Victor? Oh, oh, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, yeah, so uh, this is kind of far out fetched, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about the efforts to, to do all, you know, go to Mars and stuff and, and perform work on Mars and, and all this life support systems you'll need to work on Mars. But has, there, has there ever been a great study, a great research study, a project that anyone has ever performed to see if it's a possibility of transforming the atmosphere of Mars into a breathable atmosphere for human life, human support. I mean, does the possibility, are there any conditions on Mars in any phase of Mars's uh, transposition around the sun that would allow production of uh, organic materials or, or whatever you might want to use to produce oxygen and to, I don't know if it'd be an unstable thing or not, but to uh, yeah. transform, the, you know, actually change the atmosphere on Mars to actually it could be like a low-level atmosphere, you know, not nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the simple answer is yes. Um, many people have looked into terraforming. The The best recent paper that I know of about it is by Margarita Marinova, who is actually uh, one of the Starship designers as well. Um, and uh, so terraforming includes, includes basically with Mars, you have to warm it up a bit and then you have to thicken the atmosphere uh, so that you can at least walk around with a, the face mask on instead of a spacesuit. Um, in terms of in terms of Mars having, I think you could generate a, a warm, wet, and poisonous Mars atmosphere reasonably quickly, like you know a few hundred years maybe. Um, in, in generating a breathable atmosphere is is much more challenging because the um, 
because Mars is further from the sun, it has to um, have a much stronger greenhouse effect. Um, and uh, if you reduce the carbon dioxide to non-toxic levels in the Mars atmosphere, it will get too cold. So, you know, it becomes uh, quite a complicated problem there. But, you know, it, <clears throat> I look forward to my great, 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 great grandchildren working on that. Oh, so <laughs> thanks. <clears throat> um, uh, Jeffrey answered the gentleman's question about Starship heavy, sorry, super heavy thrust at uh, 7,500 tons. So I was off by uh, 20%, which as a former astrophysicist, I will take. Thanks, Jeffrey. Um, uh, Randall says, can you get a similar cost per kilogram launch cost in a smaller launch vehicle with Raptor engines? Does the cost efficiency scale smaller? Um, mm, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it turns out that, um, that up to a certain point, larger rockets have a better mass fraction. Um, and if you look at, for instance, the, um, the, the mass fraction, which is the cargo mass divided by the total mass of very small rockets like um, Rocket Lab's Electron, it's like 0.5%. Uh, and then if you, the Saturn V is about 4%. So it's almost 10 times, 10 times more mass per rocket mass or per fuel, per, per fuel mass. Um, but it, the other thing is that um, having a huge uh, payload fairing size is important for very large payloads. Uh, one of the things that makes things like JWST so expensive is that the whole thing has to fold up in origami style to fit into the Atlas V um, fairing. Uh, but if the fairing is much larger, then you have to fold it less and it's easier and cheaper to do that. So Ariane 5. Sorry, did I say Ariane 5? Atlas 5? Ariane 5. Damn. Yeah, slip of the tongue. Thank you. Isn't that wild? Ariane 5, I think, had its first flight after JWST program started. And I'm, I'm reasonably sure that the JDOST will be the last launch of the Ariane 5. I, I may be wrong about that, but it's certainly like it's towards the far end of that program. So like the entire life cycle of the Atlas V rocket is smaller than the entire time it's taken to build JWST, or at least it's in the same ballpark. Um, so big rockets, I think, is the way to go. The, the risk with building giant rockets is, is to find that you have no payload for them. And that was certainly the issue that um, the Saturn V would have had going forward if they had not canceled it. Um, but I think that problem is partly ameliorated if the overall launch cost of the giant rocket is less than any other rocket, including the really small ones. Um, so if, for example, it costs $5 million to launch a Starship, that's the same as it costs to, cost to launch a uh, rocket lab Electron, which is, um, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, um, uh, Dave, uh, Mr. Nordin raised hand. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point just now, uh, Jamie, uh, Casey, I'm sorry, uh, that uh, uh, larger rockets do have uh, do ultimately have a better cost structure, but their their penalty is uh, is in the capital. Uh, that, that That's the reason why uh, a lot of companies are building small rockets today is yes. not because they don't see the value in it and they don't see that things scale better. It's I think that's been known for decades. But the trouble is, is that. I've got to go to the private investor pool and I've got to ask for $3 billion for the first year to start my program and I'll never get a hit. But if I go say, look, I can build this cheap microsat launcher out of existing technology and I'll be flying in three years. And oh, by the way, I'm going to build a brand new engine. Uh, and all I need is $10 million. There'll be lots of takers and yeah. lots of failures. So yeah, for sure. That's kind of, I, I think I think the existing <clears throat> launch market is is an adequate and accurate reflection of the realities, and uh, 
SpaceX is to be lauded for taking on such a large, exorbitantly large project. I, you know, my yeah. criticisms are largely squared around the fact that there, there's a lot of ifs. I, I think your presentation has at least four critical ifs in it or miracles. Uh, you know, in physicists speak, I suppose you call them miracles, but in, engi- in the engineering world, we call them critical ifs. Yes. You got about, you're about four deep and any one of them means game over. And uh, so, yeah, good. You, you yeah. bring it, you bring an excellent point. Oh, but I think no, I agree capital, completely. I agree cap, completely. Capital is the capital is the key. Yeah, to I agree. Why completely. There aren't more large launchers. That's why, that's why ULA doesn't build larger ones. They build them exactly as large as what they think they can get away with, with the capital that they think they have. You know, they, they're not well, these, these established aerospace companies, they're not dumb. Not, not by any stretch of the other. No, I, I agree completely. Um, the, I think it's important to note that the, the various rocket startups are, are kind of make, learning their lessons and blowing up rockets on smaller rockets, which is cheaper. Um, and, and all those rockets have, uh, you know, the same basic guidance systems and so on. But almost all of them have a plan to build, you know, a Falcon 9 class rocket down the track if their initial one takes off. So we've seen that already with, um, uh, with, um, with Electron and, and with Firefly and, and, uh, and so on, that they've all got kind of a plan to build a, a bigger one down the track. Um, so, yeah, I agree completely. Uh, on, on the kind of the cost structure for for spooling up a team and a set of competencies in that area. And, and I don't think anyone would should set out to build uh, Starship as their first project out of school. Um, and I also completely agree for the record with with your kind of, you need, you know, three or four more miracles for Starship to work properly. Um, and and at JPL, they say, you know, if you've got a, a, um, a flagship class mission, you can have at most two miracles. Uh, because you know each miracle costs you know two years and two hundred million dollars something to to make sure it happens, so um, we'll see if that see if that happens. Um, thanks, Dennis, for your input there. And then uh, so Randall's asking about like maybe a half size starship or something, um, and he's and he's making a drawing it. Sorry, Randall says, I'm wondering about the future market for large-size payloads. I wonder if from a commercial perspective, whether a half-size version of the Starship might be more viable long-term. There are a lot more 767 freighter aircraft than 747 freighter aircraft. Yeah, you're 100% right about that, um, uh, particularly now. Um, <clears throat> the, However, I would I would be cautious of, of drawing an analogy too closely there because um, ultimately the, the size constraints of aircraft are determined by things like um, existing runway sizes. Um, and uh, ground support equipment, um, in addition to um, typical distances that uh, that aircraft cargo has to fly. Um, so that's uh, you know it would it'd be unwise, I think, to stretch the analogy there too far. Um, and I think if SpaceX was being run by by like a board of institutional investors, they would have shut down Starship a long time ago because Starship is explicitly built to. Uh, Essentially, destroy its own market and uh, and collapse its profit margins, um, and and put a million tons on Mars, which frankly no capital provider cares about. Um, but because it's Elon, he's able to be like, oh, and I guess at the same time we'll totally revolutionize the internet industry, and uh, that's um, maybe good enough for Sequoia or whoever came along to help fund its development. So I think it's just a nice confluence of of kind of coincidences here, which mean that building something of this magnitude is. Um, and scale of ambition is is conceivable. Uh, Victor says, is the entire stack made of stainless steel? Uh, as far as I know, yes. 
Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask. So the entire stack is made of stainless steel. So I know these calculations have been performed uh, previously, and you may have covered this subject uh, in this on, on this presentation. But uh, is this uh, the ISP? Is it enough to produce enough delta? Uh, what, so the delta V, this ISP produces the delta V. Is that enough to? I mean, to, to lock this up into a low Earth orbit with no effort? I mean, are those engines that efficient where they can actually go? Stainless steel is pretty heavy. And uh, yeah, yeah. Calculations for that. yeah, so one of the advantages of going to a larger rocket is that um, is the overall, you know, percentage of the width of the rocket that is stainless steel is less. Um, and I know that there's some mechanical engineers in the audience who'll be like, ah, but you're used to say, I, I know, I know. Um, the nice thing about stainless steel is that its uh, mechanical properties are much more uh, stable at low and high temperatures, which will have to endure as part of its flight plan. Um, in ways that conventional rockets have not had to in, in the same way. Um, and, and it's also much easier to weld than, than the um, lithium aluminium alloys that they build the uh, rockets out of, like the Falcon 9. Um, right. I mean, it's it, like ideally, you just kind of pick a material that's infinitely strong and, and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, taking that into account, the, the overall mass of the Starship, according to Elon in the most recent interview, is around about 100 tons. Um, and that's a moving target like that. And, and, and it will be reusable. Is that right? They'll return that first stage back? The yeah, yeah. The booster, booster stage comes back as well, yeah. Okay. All right. That's nice. Yeah, Mr. Stone, uh, uh, he, he clicked raise hand. James. So much you did not have the launch costs. Everything focuses on reusability, but the government and uh, the budget office. Can you speak louder? Sorry, I can't, I can't hear properly. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was a government uh, budget office report uh, that regarding the shuttle that the key problem was personnel costs. That becomes a question of the flight rate because personnel costs are amortized over a one-year period. And, and uh, do you have any idea how many people are involved in uh, the Starship's flight? Yeah. Um I don't really know. And I think there are probably other people who are doing much more granular estimates cost based on you know, observations of how many cars are in the parking lot or something like that. Um, if you have a program that has a fixed number of employees, regardless of launch cadence, then yeah, the, the amortized launch cost becomes quite high. Um, but I, I feel like that's also more common in legacy systems. Um, and in particular, um, Elon's point of view is, is oriented a lot towards automation of, of stuff. So for example, the number of people who are on console during a Falcon 9 launch is much, much smaller than you would see in, in almost any other launch system. Um, and I, I, I would only expect to see that trend continue. And so the hope there is that is that the number of people uh, that are working on this uh, system is mostly proportional to the number of launches rather than uh, kind of an independent um, overhead that has to be divided up. Um, I've got to run in a few minutes, so let's take a few more few more questions, and then um, after say goodbye. But uh, it's been it's been really wonderful. Thank know, you for coming and and no. having a chat. Um, I really yeah, appreciate. It. I, I can probably take three more questions and then and then head out. Okay, thank you, uh, uh, Andrew. Andrew, I said I saw you want to say something, Andrew. Yeah. Mr. Uh, thanks, and and so much. Uh, thank you so much, Casey, for for your time today. Really great discussion. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, if you have any thoughts on uh, SpaceX's acquisition of Swarm and what your thoughts might be on whether or not they might integrate an IoT capability into Starlink 
or uh, or any any thoughts you might have there? Um, well, I know I know Sarah and um, who's the the co-founder of Swarm, and and it's very exciting for them uh, to see that their their bet in that direction, um, you know, the value of their contribution recognized by such a major industry like a major industry player, uh, and and I don't really know much more about it than that, but. Um, but I think that uh, you know SpaceX has stated that their their mission is they're going to basically own the backbone of the internet sooner or later, um, and I think that IoT connectivity, orbital IoT connectivity, is an important part of that. But I think that if you are also like if you are a SpaceX executive and you're looking at other companies that are executing in the space, that um, if you could buy the team that built Swarm, you'd be doing really really well. So I think it's a it's a really really great really great piece of news. Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, I think uh, uh, James Tutila, do you want to say something? And I heard uh, Tasha, Tasha Donna, uh, seems to have some question earlier. Mm. Oh, okay. James is not going to say something. Tasha, do you want do you want to repeat your question again earlier? Okay, then KH, KH, you raised a question, but it was, do you want okay. to speak up? I've got Tasha's question here, which is, okay. um, what's right. your take on O'Neill cylinders? How, how Starships are a step forwards towards that? I kind of addressed that in the low Earth orbit applications slide. Um, the, the challenge with O'Neill cylinders, and, and actually I was very interested to see that uh, documentary that came out recently about, about Jared O'Neill and his, and his vision there, is that, um, is that in his book, he says, well, you know, Obviously, this is a solution looking for a problem. What's the problem? The problem is power. We've got this kind of in the occurring Malthusian catastrophe. This is in the early 1970s. Um, we're going to need a lot of space-based solar power. Uh, we can make that more cheaply in space. We can build giant space factories. Millions of people can work up there. Problem solved. Well, in 2021, which is almost 50 years later, we know that that's not really the case. We did not see a Malthusian uh, catastrophe in terms of population or energy demand. Um, we've seen uh, costs of terrestrial energy continue to fall uh, and in, indeed are today falling faster than they've ever fallen before, which is an indicator to me that uh, they were kind of still at the at the early stages of making energy really cheap for humanity. Um, and and we've also seen like the costs of doing stuff in space have not become cheaper in ways that we might've expected. Uh, in particular, O'Neill published his book before the launch of the shuttle and kind of in, in anticipated cost improvements similar to the ones that we expect now with Starship, you know, almost 50 years later. Um, and so I think that Starship provides one essential part of the overall picture, which is the ability to move a, a lot of mass into orbit quite cheaply. And I know several different teams that are working on, I know of several different teams that are working on, you know, like designing and building next generation uh, space stations uh, that are built on the Starship architecture. Um, but that still doesn't answer the other question, which is what is the killer app? What is the problem that you're actually solving? What is the thing that people will pay you money to solve that makes it worthwhile to do this? And um, we do actually have, as I mentioned, uh, good examples of, um, of you know, large research laboratories in Antarctica and other places where the you know, per person per day cost is on the order of thousands of dollars. Um, and, and certainly industrial research facilities uh, easily into that cost range. Um, so you could sort of envision large space stations that are being used for research. But in terms of manufacturing, I don't think we're quite at that cost level yet. And I don't, don't really know of like a manufacturing facility which could justify the expense of building in low earth orbit um, to serve an earth-based market. Like obviously there are some um, advantages to building factories in low earth orbit that you can't get on the surface of the earth, but the differences are 
like there's a really, really strong incentive to solve whatever the problem is that you can't that you can't solve on Earth because it's so much cheaper to do things here. So it might be that I it's slightly easier to grow good crystals in low Earth orbit. Well, yes, that's fine, but you know your budget is now five hundred million dollars to figure out how to do as good enough on Earth. And and throughout the history of the modern age, we basically found that people have been able to find ways of doing stuff on Earth. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. And then uh, last question. Yeah, last question. A KH, I saw you uh, post a question. Yeah, you I had a question. Sure, go I'll go ahead. Um, yes, you'd mentioned that SpaceX likes to control its own assets, not be relying on external ones. What about ground stations? Are they building their own Earth ground stations to talk to the Starship? Or are they using existing assets uh, from commercial, et cetera? Um, I don't know the specifics, but I think it is talked about in their FCC application because um, they handle that kind of um, bandwidth communication stuff. Um, and I know that SpaceX uses, you know, you can find websites and stuff from the various suppliers. Like they use uh, antennas and stuff made by third-party suppliers. Um, but I do know that um, SpaceX is investing heavily in, in their own Starlink infrastructure and that Starlink will be capable of communicating with, uh, with uh, assets in low Earth orbit. Um, I know that the, the Dragon communicates via the TDRS system. Um, and I know that uh, Dragon has also they've done uh, Iridium network um, demonstrations with Dragon. So like it's, um, yeah, there's many, many different options there. Uh, they also have their own uh, ground tracking stations uh, in various places around the world. I'm not precisely sure where, um, obviously they've got a, a variety of them for, um, for Starlink as well. But, but in terms of ones they used to talk to the Dragon, I'm, I, I would imagine they use NASA assets outside the United States, but I don't actually know. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Kerch. Yeah. Thank you so All much, right. Dr. Hanneman. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Give us extra, extra time. I knew in advance uh, people are very enthusiastic, so uh, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry to take a long time. That's no, uh, yeah, really, right. yeah, 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 yeah. So um, everyone, just uh, let's thank uh, Dr. Hanneman for this uh, inspiring discussion and the presentation. Just, just wonderful. Uh, so actually, we have more questions, but uh, the time is up. So uh, if you have more questions, you are welcome to contact uh, Dr. Hanneman and uh, also to uh, look at his Twitter and the follow up. Uh, and also, you can let us know. We, we can try to uh, forward you a question. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. So, uh, highly appreciate. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Handmer. So, please stay in touch. And uh, I wish you can uh, come back and uh, speak to us again. All right. So, this concludes today's uh, AWS Los Angeles section event today. Uh, so, uh, have a great weekend. Uh, see you next time. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Woo! Yeah.